I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Andrew Bloom. And we love to watch. We love to watch is about to take a little tour to Honesty Island. Be tormented by me, babe. Wonder, wonder how I do. How's the weather? Am I better? Better now that there's no you. Drink tequila for me, babe. Let it hit you cold and hot. Let your feelings be revealing that you can't forget me. Now a flower on the wall. I am growing ten feet, ten feet tall. In your head and I won't stop. Until you forget me. So, we're, what is this? What is this? Uh, week three of our field? No, it's Aaron? great news. It's week four, which because we recorded them in chronological order near the release date, you know that. <laughs> oh, wow. How am I supposed to know that we recorded something in order? Uh, That's a, it's a feat for us. Yeah, no, we haven't. That was, I was just saying that hypothetically, if you're a listener, you would assume that's that, but we're like the movies, baby. We don't we don't we don't shoot chronologically. We're bing banging and skeet scatting all over the place. Yeah, you're right. We're just like the movies. Anyways, uh, <laughs> welcome to We Love to Watch, Aaron. What is what is We Love to Watch? Well, today it's a, probably going to be uh, something that makes me equally happy and equally sad, and uh, which is perfect because that's the movie we're talking about. Uh, but we are We Love to Watch. We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of a month around that theme. And if you remember, we compare and contrast. And we're in our last week of Who Needs a Hug Month, where we are talking about movies that supposedly, hypothetically, uh, uh, lead to some sort of emotional catharsis, where uh, it leaves you with a, with a, on a happy note. But uh, after kind of having a lot of moments where you're overwhelmed with with emotion the kind of a perfect example platonic ideal of this movie is uh, it's a wonderful life which we talked about in a christmas month a few years back and so we've been covering uh movies that uh that uh speak to us theoretically in the same way now i'm putting a bunch of caveats in this because much like our first episode of the month field of dreams uh it's important to really be clear with your co-host what kind of movies you guys are vibing on in general. <laughs> and uh, and I made an assumption because we've talked about this movie a few times. I mean, I get it. Like, I didn't know that Peter wasn't as positive on it as as myself. And normally if someone's talking about how much they love a movie, they're not like, yeah, that sucks. That's not how Pete is. I get that. But I found out through the course of this that uh, he likes it uh, less than me by quite a margin. Uh, not the biggest fan of the of most of this movie, but that's fine. Uh, in general, we here's here's what I've learned, and then I'll introduce the guests more formally. Look, we've been doing this podcast almost five years. Pete started the podcast saying he was unable to cry at movies. He didn't like musicals, um, and he hated his uh, girlfriend. And since then, <laughs> okay, two of those three are true, and the other one is completely false. That's for you, the audience member, to determine. But since then, 
He cries all the time at movies and TV shows. He loves musicals. And he married his girlfriend, who is now his ex-girlfriend. Um, current wife, because, ex-girlfriend. Yeah, current wife, ex-girlfriend. Um, so he's come a long way. But I, I think I made an assumption that maybe he had come further than he had. And <laughs> Are you clear- saying this is a failure of personal growth? No, I'm just saying uh, okay. that you... You know, you kind of start, look, I, I actually mean this somewhat seriously, and I'm not saying that, that that means you have to like this movie or not, but when we first started this podcast, I think one of our first conversations were you didn't cry at movies. Now you text me all the time about movies that make you cry. Like, that's growth. In some capacity, that's growth. And this is a movie that had me almost like close to, on the verge of like uncomfortably bawling from its first five minutes and then has a lot of that moments throughout. And so I guess uh, I know in general, I think you like Pixar movies, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This isn't uh, counterculturalism. No. Um, This isn't me being like, this isn't me being like, uh, because uh, Disney is so dominant in the workspace, (laughs) Disney is so dominant in Hollywood, I have to loathe their most popular products. Like, no, it's, it's, uh, I'm generally pro Pixar. I'm actually going to talk a lot of uh, sugar about uh, other Pixar movies, I think. Uh, accomplish the goals of Inside Out better. Yeah, so I mean, it, so I guess my part of the surprise was that much like Field of Dreams, uh, right before we recorded, I basically uh, Pete Pete said a little bit of hyperbole, but basically said, "Yeah, well, I fucking hated this thing the first time, but hopefully, I like it this time." And I'm like, Wait, "What? <laughs> <laughs> like we've already booked a guest?" Uh, and then his response to me later was, uh, "I liked it less." So. Uh, so, yeah, I didn't know that going in. It is, uh, you know, full disclosure, this is my favorite Pixar movie. It is one of the movies I've seen the most, not just because I have kids um, and they watch, you know, a movie that a kid, that my kids like while well, I end up watching over and over. But one I, I've, you know, watched quite a bit, uh, even without them when they were too young to uh, watch any movie for that long. And also, I think, you know, I'd probably put this easily and probably, you know, if it's my favorite Pixar movie and the last time I made my Pixar list, Wally was like in the top 20, I, I would probably put this as a, at a minimum if I were to redo a top 100 list that I haven't done since 2012, probably be in the top 50, 25, somewhere in there. I, I really do love this movie. Uh, and we're joined today by a guest who's uh, been on two of our podcasts that are released on the same channel, hosted by the same people. Talking about the same thing, movies. Um, <laughs> uh, and those uh, Star Trek and We Love to Watch. Actually, I think you may be the first guest. Oh, that's not true. Our first, our other guest hadn't been on We Love to Watch either. But uh, you were on Star Trek first. Um, and then joined Only us to talk Only go where about... no man had gone before. Exactly. Uh, and then joined us to talk about Return to Oz. So, so far we've done a predominantly PG, I think, related rated movies with you, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, uh, but Andrew largely is, he's waiting for the go-ahead from his parents uh, to get to watch PG-13 movies. And when that happens, we're ready. Yeah, we ask all guests, I don't care if they're 20 or 80, their parents' permission to see... Because it says, you know, parent or guardian. We ask guardians, too. Like yeah, we're, guardians. We yes. follow Jack Valenti's rules to a T. Um, <laughs> but but Andrew Bloom's here to talk about, thankfully, someone who will, sounds like, be gushing about how great this movie is with me a little bit. This is true. This is true. And thank you guys very much for having me on. Very glad to be back. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am Andrew Bloom. I am a freelance film and TV critic 
who writes for Consequence of Sound and the Spool.net. And I am, I am very proud to be here to hopefully try to chip away a little bit at Pete's cold, dead heart for not just, you know, <laughs> being overwhelmed by this amazing movie. Uh, but, but all jesting aside, Inside Out is something that had steadily climbed not just my favorite Pixar movie list, but my favorite movie list. And I think it's because... Uh, there's something very elemental about it that speaks to a lot of sad boys like me. Uh, but I'm, I'm very excited to come in and uh, and discuss my fear and anger and joy and sadness and even disgust at the fact that somebody could not like this movie. Try to balance them out. I and yeah, like I want to say, like if this is a movie that means a lot to uh, you, both the people I'm talking to right now and to listeners, uh, this is not going to be me doing some sort of brutal takedown. I think the movie is just okay, but it's a movie that like just firmly does not register with me as a feel good movie. Um, Even as someone who uh, you know, Andrew, I will also uh don the uh don the pants of a sad boy uh, i'm not sure if that's the right i'm not sure if that's i the think right they're model. skinny most, jeans most <laughs> sad boys are so angry they've taken off their pants and are storming around in their dirty boxers yeah yeah my my sad sweats um <laughs> so uh just to clarify if you if you think that i'm either putting on airs or i'm going to give this movie not a fair shake uh that's not i don't think that's happening today so uh if you listen to any other episode of the show i think you're you're aware of that and even though i in the same way that peter's putting a caveat that he's going to say some negative things about a movie that a lot of people like i'm look i really like peter i'm going to say some negative things about him today um it doesn't mean that i don't think that you should give him a fair shake as a person or as a as a lover of film but in all in, in more seriousness this this happens sometimes where peter and, and that's okay like we we don't have a like a unified uh, podcast where everyone always has the same opinions peter and i do have very similar tastes in a lot of things so sometimes we like the same movies for very different reason there is this thing where like when we go to record a movie that you know, one of us doesn't like, and we know the other one likes it. Where it is a little like, ah, fuck! Like I don't want to be shitty because it's, <laughs> it's, it's not our podcast. But like, you know, there's a there are people that don't like this movie or other Pixar movies, and I think just in general, you know, there is something about these kind of family movies that they either connect or they don't. And and for this, there was like, I think this is such an uh, an elegant metaphor um, and really speaks to me in a, in a couple different ways, both as a parent, but also. Um, and, and also as, um, you know, someone who, yeah, did grow up with, uh, you know, sad boy-esque qualities and, and, and feeling like, you know, I wasn't understood. And I had to, I had to move, uh, states too, when I was in first grade, just, just a fucking terrible experience. It felt like it took years to kind of get, get back in the swing of like the friends and the relationships and the comfortability I had. So like. I feel like for me personally, it felt like this movie was basically like speaking to me directly. So I can also understand that if you haven't had the same experiences or just that you've had the same experiences, but they didn't like they didn't quite match your uh, the way that you approach them or the emotional resonance. And then you you might not like it, but I don't want to put words too much in Peter's mouth. I think this is our first Pixar movie. I think it's our. Is this our second animated movie that we've ever done in five years, Peter? We did Fantastic Planet. I'm trying. I'm having trouble thinking of another. We've one. not. We just keep coming up with uh, excuses not to do an anime or a Miyazaki month. So <laughs> um, we haven't done those. There's also a caveat here that, like, uh, sometimes so a little peek behind the curtain. Sometimes uh, when we're coming up with month 
that the, the, uh, one of the ways that Aaron and I keep our relationship in balance is that occasionally there's months where we come up with a big list and then we sort of um, both we, we go by, you know, we'll do these four months because we're all we're both excited about these months. And sometimes there'll be months where it's like I am pumped about a specific theme or a sub theme that might be super specific. And Aaron's like, yeah, I'll go along with the ride. And this was this month was entirely designed by Aaron. Um, so I a was little like, bit, I, I think. I, I, I think that's right from the idea that, like, I kind of wanted to do a heartwarming movie month. 2020 was rough. It felt like it would make sense to kind of do those types of movies that produce a catharsis. Though, you know, you're not going to get a one-to-one with someone, I think, in most cases where someone's going to be impacted by the same movies in the same way because it is very subjective. And we talked a lot about in the Field of Dreams episode where I was kind of the lone person saying, oh, here's why this movie really at least works for me, even if I... I get there's some things that don't hold up well or don't hold up under scrutiny or stuff like that. But it's kind of hard to argue at the end of the day where, if, well, if you, this connects to you in a certain way and that makes you feel something like who might argue with that. In the same way that we we're talking about a comedy, it's like, well, yeah, I don't find this particularly funny. But if you're laughing, I can't really argue that you <laughs> that you find it <laughs> funny. So so this kind of fits that a little bit. But I, I think it might make sense to start a little bit and talk about. Uh, kind of Pixar because they are not that they haven't been talked about to death. So I'm 37. So um, you know Disney was becoming huge, re-becoming huge, which we kind of talked about last November in our Disney month back in like the late 80s and then early to mid 90s with especially when they're animated movies. And then as I kind of got to the age where I was less interested in seeing uh you know the their animated movies in theaters, like I, I still to this day have not seen Mulan. Just because when I was 15, I didn't like feeling it, f- f- didn't feel like seeing a Disney movie. I, I kind of reached that point that I was like, yeah, you know, they're kind of kids movies. I'm not as interested. But on that same time. You've been a man, you mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, puberty <laughs> made, a made a man out of me. You. Yeah. No, I am and aware Donny of Osmond the song. Donnie come to your house and put you through boot camp. <laughs> is, is that, is it Donny Osmond? Is one of the voices in Mulan? Isn't he the guy who sings uh, uh, "Make a Man Out of You"? The big song. Am I wrong? I don't. I, I don't know if it. he's. The, is he the singing voice? He's definitely not the speaking voice, but he could absolutely be the singing voice. Mulan. Wasn't he like eighty when that movie came out? He wouldn't have been eighty. <laughs> Donnie, Donnie, like Donnie and Marie, artist Donnie. Yeah, Osmond. he was. He was still doing uh, cameoing in Weird Al's White and Nerdy around that time, so he was definitely still <laughs> active. Uh, yeah, you can do that when you're eighty. Uh, <laughs> there's no uh, age yes, limit Donny, for hanging out with weird al yes donny osmond sings i'll make a man of you oh um unrelated sorry. uh sorry two, two different one no uh, weird fact so but at that same time there was and, and like a lot of those like the disney pg rated movie uh the, the live action stuff all that stuff you know i was going to those movies or seeing those movies on like uh you know the friday after thanksgiving when my whole family's going to movies so i'm seeing the live action 101 donations but i'm not making time for that when i'm renting movies with friends or making a point to go see them in theaters or stuff like that right i'm seeing other classics like uh the man who knew too little in the mortal Kombat movie uh in congo and shit like that right and but then at that same time that like the traditional kids movie is is kind of peeling away from me you know i see toy story i'm i'm 12 when that comes out but i still really love it and then bugs life i see in theaters a couple times and then 
Toy Story 2. And there's, you know, kind of this. So at the time that I'm at my peak, I'm too old for this shit when it comes to kid stuff. Pixar as a studio is actually like hitting me in a way that's like, yeah, but these are like really good and really funny. And then by the time I think I had like went past the age that I cared if it was a kid movie or a animated movie and was more just focused on what was a good movie. I think that's when they really started to kind of hit their peak of literally just some of the better movies I've ever seen, like the ups and Wally's and Toy Story three. And then I feel like this movie comes out of an era where all of a sudden they, it felt like they were losing a little bit of that magic, right? Like, you have car sequels, Good Dinosaur comes out, I think the car same Car spinoffs. Year. Car spinoffs, uh, planes. And then this movie comes out, you know, six years ago now. And it's like, oh, they they can still produce classics. And then obviously I think they've kind of kept up with that to some extent. Like, Coco is fantastic uh, and a few other ones. But but yeah, this is, I, I do feel like that when it comes to Pixar, it was at an age that a lot of like Disney brats were aging out of Disney. This came along and said, well, we still got something here for you. Yeah, and I, I actually appreciate the audaciousness of it, because especially coming from someone who um, like Pete Docter, um, who kind of uh, made a, a name for himself as a director with the Monsters, Inc. movie and uh, the... Uh, short that came after it it was like mike's first car or something or sully's first car somebody got a car um and it was a prequel to two cars very stealthy about it oh what if all the cars from the cars universe are monsters from the monster universe and monsters inc that's why they're sentient oh you you do have the, the bit at the end of the first cars movie where you get to see uh monsters inc as though they were cars they're monster trucks i think Oh, yes, yes, yes. I forgot about that because I have wiped uh, cars from my memory. I've, I've tried to bleach <laughs> it from my memory as much as possible. Um, but yeah, you tried so, to burn rubber over it. Yeah, eat my dust. Um, so I, I Pete Doctor kind of made a name for himself with Monsters, Inc. And then as uh, the years went on, he was sort of a part of the, the new wave of pixar directors that was trying to alongside some people that are not very good very uh, good people like john lasseter um trying to uh maintain pixar's bona fides in an era where pixar was stepping into deeply commercial uh territory where the the disney influence was stepping up where disney itself disney animation was starting to make good movies again (laughs) Yeah, and, like, and, and to the point where, like, and, yeah. if you asked me to, if you asked me to name which movies were Pixar and which movies were Disney animation from that era, despite seeing probably ninety percent of them, I probably wouldn't be able to do it to full, um, to to full to full accuracy, right? Because um, I think like there was a year where like Brave was the Disney Pixar, animated no, one, Pixar movie. Okay, wasn't there a year where like. Disney animated made the like more artsy looking one and then Pixar made the like Monsters uh, University or whatever. No, uh, anyway. so that's happened a few. T- I mean, I that definitely has happened, especially when they got into sequels. Like I like Brave, but it's obviously not near some of their their other work. But I mean, you, you think about like D- Disney animation had Wreck-It Ralph, had Tangled, had Frozen, had Moana, had Zootopia at a time, you know, and th- there wasn't as much of the Pixar stuff that I think really resonates. You had like Cars 3. You had Monsters University and Brave and, 
even stuff like Finding Dory, which I would put more in the this is this is a fine category. But before we get into Andrew's like history with with kind of Pixar and Disney and stuff like that too, Pete, I you came you're you're younger than me, and so when Toy, Toy Story came out, you were five. But you also, and I, I just mean this as an accurate reflection of stories you've told me, not as an insult. Um, I feel like you had an earlier and quicker rejection of uh, dumb kid stuff um, than most people I know. But yet, and and Toy Story went to bed something that you started watching as you were uh, aging out of, of Disney stuff, theoretically, because you would have been five when it came out. So did you have that? Were you, did you ever at a point where you're like, Toy Story 2, I liked it better when it was called Akira. Like what <laughs> like what no. was your what was your history with that? No, Maybe. no, no. I I I actually like uh, so Andrew, uh I was the youngest of four and for some reason mm. I felt some sort of impulse to reject uh kitty stuff at a certain age. I think it was cuz I looked up I looked up to my older brother. I am brother, not the baby. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and I think it was because my brother is seven years older than me, and, and and that. But like, you can fit some of my distaste for this era, or, or distaste for the early two thousands animation stuff, um, or early two thousands children's entertainment into that 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 sphere. But you can't fit Toy Story one into it because um, Toy Story one came out when I was yeah I was five, and I was perfectly perfectly in love with that i played that shitty uh, genesis game like constantly <laughs> it's Which, 3d time, polygons it mom it was insane looking at the time like it looked like the movie more or less well it was yeah crazy. they had blast processing you gotta you gotta get that blast processing this processing is a blast but did you um, like so like stuff like and incredibles and finding emos and stuff is coming out when you're like you know, in in your early teen years, were you like this is dumb, or were you, were you still kind of space for Pixar because I considered Pixar to be and and to some extent still do, but you know maybe with the, some of the luster off of it, I considered Pixar to be on a higher tier of charm, and that Pixar Pixar's interests weren't in trying to capture necessarily um, the zeitgeist the way DreamWorks was like True, DreamWorks yeah. like we're, we're going to have someone be sassy and we're going to have whatever the hottest ludicrous song is in the movie. And <laughs> Bruce Willis is going to be in it for like eight seconds as a squirrel. Like there, there was just like, like DreamWorks and other animation studios had a desperateness to it. And Pixar yeah. always kind of stayed on the shelf um, for, for, you know, I don't know a decade and a half, maybe for me. Um, and the I also and this is going to sound hornier than it was, but like I actually really liked taking um, women on dates to see Pixar movies because I found it was like a really like uh, fun, like second or third date kind of activity um, because it was like, let's go do something like, all right, we're going out to the movies, or whatever, but like, let's go do something that's like somewhat innocent and wholesome and uh, like. There's a pretty good chance of us having a a, a, a a wholesome time and I'll be able to tell afterwards, like by how much stuff made you happy or didn't make you happy. I'll be able to tell like a little bit more about you than like if we had gone and seen a serious drama on our second or third date. We're just like, yeah, that was really well made. Are you saying um, it was a terrible idea when I went and took a date in college to go see About Schmidt? <laughs> <laughs> First date, we're going to go see a sixty-year-old who's trying to Schmidt. make sure they got secondary well, education done. Oh, like film, a timeless love story about <laughs> Schmidt. Um, 
Yeah, I made uh, bad choices a lot of what times. Was your, what was your line after you walked out of the theater? Be like, I also have a hot tub. <laughs> Kathy Bates <laughs> is not in it. <laughs> um, you want to learn about Aaron? <laughs> but yeah, I held Pixar up for, on, on a higher shelf, more or less, for most of this period. I was also, like, absolutely uh, blown over by The Incredibles. I think Incredibles is still, like, maybe the best thing Pixar has done. Yeah, that that does make a lot of sense. And it's kind of like nice to hear, too, just because um, I think, you know, I, I think Pixar, especially, I mean, by the time you were, you know, I think, you know, 2004 through 10, they're essentially producing like some of the best animated movies or movies of all time. Um, so I could see why you would be like, all right, yeah, this stuff's dumb, but like this the rest of this is pretty good andrew i don't i have no idea how old you are as far as i know you're we got a regular donny osmond here um <laughs> what's that shiny <laughs> <laughs> but what's what's what was your history with like um kind of the way that disney's uh one wave of their animation fell while pixar started to kind of become ascendant so what's interesting for me is that i'm, I'm kind of in between the two of you guys i had sort of the big gap between Disney, uh, when I dropped off Disney and then later picked up Pixar, I was in mid-elementary school when Toy Story came out. I loved it. I thought it was great. It was an age where I would go see every Disney movie that was in theaters, whether that was because my parents needed an excuse to get us out of the house <laughs> for a while or just because of the sheer quality of the films. Like I, I liked music when I was a kid. I liked the animation. I liked the adventurism. And it was the height of the Disney renaissance for me, so it was very easy to... Uh, find myself drawn to these kinds of films. But it's funny because my dividing line was Hunchback of Notre Dame. Like I remember watching it and liking it, but it was that same sort of era for me where I was like, you know what? I am officially too old for this. I'm not going to go see kitty movies anymore. I'm going to ah, go watch Citizen Kane. I, I don't even know what I was watching at that point, but it was definitely not Disney movies. Uh, and then of all things in high school, one of my professors uh, was out for a week or so, and the substitute put on Finding Nemo and Monsters, Inc., and I hadn't really engaged with any of those movies in a very long time. But what else? it's better than doing math at that point. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> kicked back and enjoyed them uh, as we're about to get into. It's very tough to watch that first scene of Finding Nemo and not have your heartstrings tugged. So from there... You know, I, I, it took me a while to come back to Disney and go back and watch movies like Mulan that I had missed for my uh, I, I'm too old and mature for this phase. But uh, it, it showed me that, hey, I considered myself an adult. I've watched in like Donnie Darko. So clearly my taste is very sophisticated. <laughs> uh, I, I can also appreciate this kind of film without it meaning that I'm a little kid. So pretty much from then on, you it's know, I wouldn't always... <laughs> precisely uh and you know from then on i would not necessarily go to the theater every time but i would at least try to make a point to pick up on these uh pixar films that were coming out uh right up until i would say around cars um maybe the ratatouille era was around the end for me and then, uh, you know, I, I put off seeing Up for a long time. It just didn't look interesting to me. I, I think I was just in a different place in my life. And then finally, I think I was, it was literally 
the night before an exam. I was like, okay, I can't think about, you know, the, the subject matter anymore. I just need something that I'm going to turn my brain off and I'll just enjoy this animated film. I'm sure it's just going to be a delightful, <laughs> silly romp and it's not going to leave any imprint on me whatsoever. And then in, again, in the first 12 minutes, you're just like, <laughs> oh my God, what is this? You've stabbed me directly in the aorta. Like, I, I, Apparently my tale is, is being unsuspecting of, uh, you know, Pete Doctor and, and Pixar's general propensity to knock you over with a feather when you're not expecting it. Uh, and so, again, from there, I, I kind of picked it up and, and eventually picked up the the Disney animated renaissance, to, to coin a phrase there. And, uh, you know, some, some films look better than others. Uh, I'll confess, I have yet to see Monsters University. Uh, I have yet to see Cars 3. Uh, some of the sequels don't necessarily appeal to me yeah. in the same way. But especially when you have somebody like Pete Doctor, who I think has gone, uh, you know, at least four for four in terms of making good quality films. Uh, when you have something like Coco, which looks very interesting and creative in its premise and what it's going for, uh, it, it's easy to be p pulled in by that because you can trust uh, that Pixar films in general are not going to do the kinds of things that other films, especially films for children, do. And that's something that it always draws me to it, that there's uh, especially in these imaginative worlds, so many places you can go, and Pixar is not afraid to go to them. Yeah, and I, you know, one thing that this, that this Inside Out reminds me of, and I think in general, the best Pixar movie, um, the, the sorry, the best Pixar movies do as well, which I also think explains why so many people were annoyed at Cars Two specifically, and the uh, omnipresence of Larry Cable guy in that is is like like we talked about when we did our Muppets month. You know, Jim Henson when he made children's television that that I know myself and Peter have a have a huge connection to. I would venture to guess Andrew that you would you would say the same. Um, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh great, we're gonna have a Kermit off later on this episode. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, Pete does a very good uh, Kermit as well as I learned. Uh, I learned he didn't like Inside Out. Learned he liked Kermit right before the show, or learned he <laughs> could do a Kermit impression right before the show. But that idea of like we're gonna make movies um, for kids about childhood in a lot of ways and about what it means to be a person in the world and we're not going to like you know the the common phrase is dumb down the presence but dumb it down for children but it's more of just like we are going to make a movie that is you know going to have a lot of things that they're interested in but we're going to make a movie that they're going to have to meet us part way on that they're going to have to there's going to be words they don't know there's going to be concepts they don't know and we're not doing that as a as a purposeful fuck you or saying like like the annoying teacher that tells you to look up a word in the dictionary sometimes if you don't know it but just that like ultimately we feel like this is richer this is more rewarding and this is being able to tell the story that will ultimately resonate to them uh, as well as to their parents and they will literally grow with it where the movies um and what we're trying to do will reveal itself. And I, I feel that way now, whether you're talking about, you know, the Muppet movie or even Sesame Street, as I go back and watch a lot of the same segments and stuff like that I used to watch as a as a kid with my kids. You know, you just realize, like, there's there's new things you're pulling from it while still, like, respecting what the why my or respecting understanding why my my daughters who are two and six would be so enamored with it. And I think the Pixar movies really are the are taking that legacy of 
like we're going to talk about stuff that affects them inside out being a great example we're going to talk about what it's like to feel like um your parents don't understand you or putting a lot of emotional weight on you or what it's like to feel like you don't have any friends or what it's what it's like to feel like sad in a way that it's tough to express because your parents live their lives trying to make sure that you're not sad and you're happy and all these kind of things so how do you know it's a healthy expression and all these other things that that whether you're two or three or four or 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 20 or 30 or 40 you're experiencing them yeah yeah and i think before i i mentioned anything about inside out that i don't particularly like and there's stuff about soul i also don't particularly like um there's <laughs> I, mean, I haven't seen that one if you just want to complain about other pixar movies yeah but they're, they're both directed by pete doctor so i think that's the thread right um <laughs> But it is that I admire their ambition and them taking on uh, things that are larger than life, things that seem would would be far too abstract to to tackle with a an animated movie that needs to use the language and um, the complexity of a children's movie, or at least you know the the tacit complexity. Um, parents can get more out of it, I think. Um, but at least you know on a literal level, it needs to be complex, just complex enough that a kid can understand it. I admire the ambition. Like, I think that's kind of something that like unites a lot of d the dissolver types is like admiring the ambition, even if it's not a totally successful experiment. And like, that's why I don't think it's like a terrible movie or whatever. It's not, that's not where I'm coming from. It's that I'm like, I'm more just disappointed that it, for me, it doesn't quite work as a uh, silly, goofy adventure inside a, you know, a, a kooky mind, the way uh, monsters Inc works or, um, the way I think Coco is a much more successful movie at talking about death and sadness than either Inside Out or Soul. Um, and those movies have a visual inventiveness and, and an exciting sort of uh, fun adventurism that I, I, I quite admire um, more than I do in Inside Out. And um, the the point I'm getting to is that, like, I love the fact that this movie is like, let's make a movie about why it's OK to be sad. And that it's a necessary part of life and that denying that is actually going to have its, its own cost. Um, Cause that's a lesson that I think people learn too late in life. Mm -hmm. um, especially I think I, I, I don't have any children, but it's something that like, I think people need to learn about themselves earlier. I think people need to learn that about relationships too, that just cause your partner is sad. Um, doesn't mean that like there's something to fix. Sometimes it's just a phase. Sometimes it has nothing to do with you. Sometimes it does have something to do with you. Um, but uh, sort of understanding that the people around you are alive and they're on their own sort of, uh, they, they have their own sort of control panel going on inside. And like, just because you're, um, you you feel like you're in control of your, your emotions doesn't mean that everyone around you um, necessarily agrees. Um, it doesn't mean that you're done growing. Uh, I think that's an important lesson to teach kids. And I think it'll be something we're taking up, take apart as we, we talk about the movie itself. Um, but I just don't think that it successfully accomplishes that goal. And it just becomes a sort of silly adventure where the silly adventurism doesn't work for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's actually telling, um, the same story from two perspectives that both happen to resonate uh, with me, which is the story from the perspective of the kid who is experiencing sadness and feeling, you know, basically more adult emotions. They um, they are literally cutting the, and then kind of gets into a kind of a depressive state where 
they are cutting themselves off from from feeling things and and all emotions and kind of and also like the pressure that parents put on on children to express themselves in certain way and i I think that is gen i mean from my perspective that runs very successfully throughout the movie and then i think the second uh story that and theme that's really running through this is uh what it's like to be a a uh a parent and spend so much of your life just wanting good things for for your children and how you know you you do go out of their way to you know take pain away from them or uh, you know, try to distract them from pain or sadness or all the bad emotions, because in the same way that you're kind of programmed to kind of keep them safe, um, in the same way you try to you program to keep themselves from physical danger, you know, you kind of recognize what that sadness that you felt a lot of times was was bad or you didn't like that. and You don't want them to feel that way. And there's there's kind of that part of feeling uh, helpless to to do anything about it and then also having to learn to um having having to learn to step aside and to not try to be the blocker from those emotions but someone who is you know there beside them while they do it and that's not expressed by uh um by the parents in this movie uh that is a that is the, although that sort of secondary theme is expressed through Joy's character uh and kind of that personification of uh, wanting um wanting riley to experience uh joy uh and and to stop her specifically from from letting sadness uh from letting sadness take the wheel so i think both of those run through the movie very well and uh, complement each other and i think they they meet at some very six they kind of meet at the end at the same place um and you kind of see both both reactions what, what's interesting about this movie a little bit is that the the parents who are very good don't really get to play that role because of the nature of the way that the the movie is framed. But regardless, I think we're already starting to get into it. So I think it makes sense. Are you guys ready to continue to talk about Inside Out? Let's Yeah. We'll say, because we're recording this in order, and we know that your alternate taglines, maybe? Mm-hmm. Uh, sadness will get you attention. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's true. Anger uh, will, too. <laughs> A 90-minute Zoloft commercial. <laughs> I think, Sorry. I mean, running away from home I'm only doing will get you attention. Uh, Inside Out starts with a uh, one a great Pixar montage that kind of sets up a lot of concepts very quickly, as well as kind of tells the story of Riley. Uh, so Riley uh, starts out as a newborn baby uh, who her first she opens her eyes, sees her mom and dad, starts smiling, and Joy is born, who is the personification that lives in Riley's head, who um, uh, helps her to experience. Uh, joy right behind her came sadness which uh, is represented by the baby crying and sadness kind of just leaning into this one button control panel that just makes the baby cry so um it does two things very quickly so to let you know what's going on one 
it kind of sets up uh, who Riley is as a person. She's this kid who's just like a lot of other, you know, toddler to five, six, seven, eight, or nine years old, uh, where they play, they have fun. She's got uh, two uh, mom and a dad, uh, played by, uh, voiced by Diane Keaton and Kyle MacLachlan, which is great. Um, I didn't catch that. Yeah. They feel like pretty big gets for not really big roles. <laughs> That's pretty overqualified. Yeah, they're one of those things that they're very good in their roles, and then you they could have been played by nobody. And then uh, I think I don't think I recognized them the first time, but just like these voices sound very familiar. They're good at these parts, and then uh, yeah, seeing the credits, I'm like, that was fucking Kyle MacLachlan. Yeah, <laughs> they should have had John Ratzenberger voice both the mom and the dad. <laughs> So, yeah, so they're introduced, they're just kind of telling the story of Riley, interspersed with the fact that there's, in, in this world, basically, uh, your emotions and your feelings are represented by an intricate system of, of beings that live in your head that represent all the different parts that kind of make your brain work. So, there's a control panel, it's run by um, five main emotions, which are anger, disgust, fear joy and uh sadness for riley they got uh kind of basically like nbc's i think all these people besides lewis black had an nbc show at the time mindy kaling's disgust lewis black is anger uh amy poehler is uh is joy uh bill Hader is fear and i feel bad i'm forgetting her name phyllis from the office is sadness Phyllis Smith. It's a very hard one to remember. Phyllis Smith. Damn it. I knew it was very close. Yeah, Phyllis Smith is is, uh, sadness. And basically, they operate a control panel that when something happens that that, um, pokes in, they kind of represent Riley's feelings. So they show Riley as a kid who has uh, broccoli in disgust, doesn't want to eat the broccoli. And when his dad tries, when her dad tries to force her to eat broccoli, anger steps in and starts, you know, throwing the broccoli and stuff like that. Um, I don't, we don't need to get into the metaphysics of it too much. It is kind of interesting that like, they don't, they definitely see Riley as someone who's doing all this stuff herself. They seem to just be, responding to some sort of impulses or are i guess are the impulses inside riley that uh, make things happen so one of the things that make riley a person is this thing called core memories every single thing that happens has a memory it's colored by what emotion it uh the memory holds so whether you're disgusted or fear joy for example is a yellow or a gold color so when she has a joyful memory it locks into a gold uh, sphere the ones that are kind of extremely important and formative form core memories that are kind of representative of her personality so uh, for example in this one a memory of her and her best friend walking along the sidewalk end up forming uh, what they call a friendship island so that is the core of her representation of friendship that a bunch of other memories spring to but that is the foundational memory for her concept of what a good friend is, hypothetically. Uh, so all of a sudden, they, they're moving from Minnesota, uh, appropriately enough, to, to San Francisco. Moving for a kid, uh, even to, a, to the same house in the same city, going to the same school, can be difficult. It's a major change uh, in, in, in your life at that age. Uh, moving to a new city where you uh, are losing out on your friends and stuff like that is kind of the setup for w- what causes a lot of disruption 
in Riley's life. So to try to get through this, essentially, um, you know, she st- there starts to be uh, as she moves that first day and starts realizing the house isn't what she expected. The pizza is not what she expected. A lot of the things she had in her head just aren't what they're expected. She starts to feel kind of sad and have a bad day. And, Can we pause on the pizza thing real quickly? Did they just sure. order weird pizza? Well, no, they they make a note that I can't I've never been to a place that only serves one pizza, one kind of pizza. I live in California. I assure you, this does not exist. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> first of all, you live like 3000 miles away because California is a giant state. Yeah. But I live in I live in Southern California, uh liberal hippie land with all the vegan food and shit and like pretty much every restaurant. Okay, well it's just that restaurant. I don't know. It's a local artisan broccoli and cheese only pizza place, Peter. Maybe maybe it's like uh uh they it's it's a ham sandwich place that exclusively serves one kind of pizza. <laughs> I, I was going to say I, I lived in uh, New York City around this time, not in San Francisco, but there was definitely a phase where all these restaurants would pop up that basically only served one thing or only specialized in one thing. And yes, sure, there were usually different flavors, but I, I will at least accept as a conceit of the film that like this is the weird hippie broccoli only pizza shop. This is just and a, in a movie a- about magical uh, <laughs> internal mind obstacle courses. I can accept the broccoli only pizza shop. Listen, this is just something I want to put my foot down on. <laughs> like, I, I cannot fucking imagine a place that's like, all we do is we make broccoli pizza. It's all maybe, they got, maybe they have a good craft beer or something. Who knows? <laughs> maybe it's a front for the mob. <laughs> we don't actually want people placing orders. No. <laughs> Complicates the books. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, is this an anti-fault shop? Um, <laughs> sorry go on Aaron. uh so there's these core memories that are foundational to like what riley sees as certain things so there's family there's a goofball island there's these kind of things um sadness touches a memory that was happy and turns it blue and they're like sadness you got to stay away from stuff we don't know what's going on with you why are you trying to touch these things <laughs> so um riley goes to class they're so, on a- they're so mean to sadness in the first part of this movie <laughs> Well, yeah, because they don't know. They are. I mean, they, they literally start out by Joyce saying, I don't know why she's here, which I think a, I, I think, think like need to legally finish this movie. Otherwise, they're just like, it's a story about how you can bully people and you're never supposed to be sad. <laughs> Ostracism I, works. That's our motto. I do think maybe we can pause a little bit here and we do want to get back to it, though. Like, I do think that's the, the kind of the beginning of the movie where Joy, you know, Joy's a baby. Uh, she's pressing the button and here's a newborn baby who's laughing and then all of a sudden sadness comes in and is you know forced to press the button and make you know crying noises which if you've been around a baby who's crying it is stressful as you try to solve whatever problem exists but i you know we are it's we kind are, of like uh, built in the in the lab like we are, are we are built to find that sound um some combination of irritating and empathetic yeah and you know i think it's kind of like when when people describe, I think, a lot of the fairy tale or, you know, version of, of heaven, whether you believe in an afterlife or, or not, it's like that idea of you don't feel some of these emotions like that. That idea of why do we even have to feel sad or scared or angry or hurt or any of these things like the, all those things suck. And so I do get that idea of like, I think pe- when people think of like a paradise or a utopia that idea of this being a vestigial emotion that we almost don't need. 
as um, even if like I think you can say, well, I get why I feel sad. It would be great if I never had to feel this way. And um, so I, I do think that's kind of how the movie sets it up. I like that Amy uh, or that Joy is kind of like, I don't know why we need her. And then kind of keeps going on that. And then when she starts causing being more present, because it is true that like when you're a kid, you're usually sad um, uh, for, you know, 10 to 20, 30 minutes at a time. You, you don't have bigger feelings than that. It's I don't like the thing that happened. And now that thing has been corrected. And, you know, most of the time I feel better now. And uh, so, so sadness starts, you know, she goes to uh, Riley goes to a new school in San Francisco and she has that worst experience where the, you know, the teacher calls. She's 12 years old, uh, which is the worst age. <laughs> and the teacher calls on her and asks her to say some things about uh, where she was from. And that memory of telling about how much she liked hockey and then realizing she wasn't going to get to do it makes her start crying. In the middle of class, which understandably makes disgust, fear, and all the emotions go, oh no, this is really bad. And sadness touches the core memory of Minnesota friendship and hockey. I forget which one exactly. I think the hockey one. And turns it blue. Uh, Or no, sorry. A new core memory forms out of this experience, which could, you know, then basically indicates to them that there's going to be this embarrassing formative memory that forms. And joy that's blue, which is the first blue core memory. And she Joy tries to get rid of it in that process. She and sadness and all the other core memories get sucked out of of the control center and into the rest of Riley's uh, brain or head. So they are now lost. They have to get the core memories. You know, uh, Riley is um, get the core memories back. Riley is now being led exclusively by uh, fear. Uh, anger and disgust which are all these fun moments where those emotions try to mimic joy uh which leads to like you know uh, her being sarcastic and being snippy which is uh, I, I really like that idea of like uh anger trying to pretend to be happy equals sarcasm um which is a very funny joke um but anyways, ultimately, so they're going through Riley and they find all these different parts of kind of your memory and the personification of someone growing up. So it's all your memories stored. There's a giant pit where basically um, memories go to die when you forget things. Um, there's all these different parts of, of, of Riley's head, like abstract thought or imagination land. They also run into uh, Bing Bong, who is Riley's imaginary friend. Uh, Richard three. Kind. Sorry, what? It's Richard Kind, right? Yeah, Richard it Kind. Is. Yeah. Uh, doing a fantastic vocal performance, especially near the end, which we'll get to here in a oh second. Oh my, yes. They eventually get on the train of thought as a way to get back, and Riley, again, is starting to shut off more and more. Um, Anger decides the best thing is if our, all the core memories are gone and Riley's miserable, we made all these happy core memories back in Minnesota, so we should run away back to Minnesota. Um, during the, and she starts kind of getting shut off emotionally from, from everything as she kind of just sees the life that she had gone and kind of coming to terms with that, 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 that life is no longer, uh, exists. So there's a lot of different adventures that are getting, um, joy back, but the whole time is, uh, joy is kind of saying sadness, you can come along, but I, I don't, I don't really need you while she realizes that, that sadness starts solving problems as a way to get back to the command center that she can't. The first one is with Richard Kind, who knows the way, uh, Bing Bong gets sad that a lot of, a lot of his stuff is disappearing 
his home is disappearing and he refuses to go on and joy is unable to like positive think him to move further where sadness just empathizes with him and eventually you know he gets o- he gets over the moment and comes through it also when they're trying to wake uh riley sleeping she has dreams that's a funny runner that we can talk about a little bit um and uh you know joy is is just stuck on that kind of optimistic let's make her have a dream where she's so excited she wakes up and Santa's like but that's never happened like she gets scared and joy's like but i don't she's had a rough day enough i don't want her to get scared so she kind of learns what you know as she says what sadness is for through this trip Meanwhile, near the end, if they're about to get back, um, they, uh, Joy and Joy trying to keep Sadness from entering the command center ends up with Bing Bong into the, the place, the, the it's not long-term memory, I forget the name, the memory hole or whatever, where things eventually disappear. Um, Joy kind of, a big old pit in the middle, uh, and Joy kind of realizes that um, what Sadness is for and why that was important when she looks back at a core memory that uh, is happy when you replay it where she is being lifted on her um, over her head by her teammates. But you realize that what happened right before that, that defined that happy moment, the creative core moment was not based on them winning the game, but her losing the game uh, and actually missing the shot that cost them the game and recognizing that uh, both her parents and her team were still there to celebrate her. And then, you know, Joy finally realizes that, you know, where where sadness fits, that like happy moments are not always happy moments. And these things get a little bit broader than just a simple I had a good day and something was happy. Uh, so th- they get out or she then tries to figure out a way out. They use this uh, magic um, magic wagon. Uh, Bing Bong recognizes that he is basically not a part of Riley's life and kind of sacrifices himself to to help um, in, into the the memory hole. That's what's called into the memory hole to get a memory uh, dump. Am I crazy? Maybe it's the memory dump. Yeah, uh, memory hole is definitely a everything is terrible concept. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's also dump. A, a human concept, but <laughs> I, I don't know which one is right. Essentially, Bing Bong like doesn't belong in anything but the but the memory dump where he's kind of forgotten. And he sacrifices himself to get Joy back and because, you know, he he loves Riley. So Joy then she does another trick with basically um, a ma- uh, get, getting an infinite amount of imaginary boyfriends, uh, much like the famous uh, Einstein theorem, uh, to, to get back to the command center. And, and uh, everyone's like, great, Joy, you can start the command center and get her back to where she was. And Joy realizes... Uh, it's time for sadness to take over. It's time for her to feel those feelings, to deal with how she's how she's handling it. So she she's running away. She gets off the bus. She goes home and just expresses to her parents kind of, yeah, I'm having a really difficult time. And the pressure that you guys are putting on me to make sure I'm having a good time is that's a lot of pressure. I mean, she doesn't say it this way, but is ultimately saying that's a lot of pressure for me to bear uh, as a 12 year old. Um, trying to be the emotional support for this move and I'm not happy and I feel like all these things are gone and then it kind of flashes forward to like her parents are not mad they have a good moment flashes forward to her you know playing hockey and and kind of and meeting a boy and kind of getting a little more you know starting to form those 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 uh 
core memories again are starting to uh, make peace with her new life and start to find things she enjoy. And meanwhile, you see that, you know, the command center is growing. Her emotions are taking on a greater depth. And a lot of the core memories are swirls. They're not just um, happy or sad memories, but that emotions are more complex and they're mixing into all these all these different colors. And that is uh, unfortunately not a two minute uh, uh, plot recap, but a 10 minute one. Cause there's a lot going on in this movie. And um, um, I think, uh, I think it makes sense a little bit to just start on maybe the bigger themes and how they, how they work as we kind of touched on earlier sure. about child who's growing into more complex memories. Um, and then, you know, the, the parents who are, you know, in some ways, trying to protect them from from feeling that way. No, absolutely, and I think one of the things that stood out to me rewatching the movie is not just the way it talks about sadness as a valuable emotion, but sadness as something that lets other people know you need help, that lets other people know what you're doing right now isn't working emotionally for you. And I think what what stands out to me about it is how well that's dramatized through. Joy's experience uh, with sadness that, you know, we, we talked in Jess about how legitimately kind of mean Joy is at the beginning. She's like, you stand <laughs> over here, stay in the circle. I'm going to scooch you into the circle. And then as the movie progresses, she sees what sadness can do. She sees that sadness is knowledgeable about how to get from one place to another. She sees that when Bing Bong is devastated after uh, the, the sled is taken away and Imagination Land is going away. That just kind of trying to happy him forward isn't going to get Joy what she needs to get. It's not going to get them where she needs to go. Instead, it takes empathy from sadness to sit there and listen to him and say, you need to express these emotions. And that's okay. I listen. I hear how you feel. I accept your feelings. And just getting that out is a means to help him move on. That's something I hadn't really considered before, but I think that makes a really good point. That like when we talk about empathy... We're almost exclusive. Like if you're going to put the uh, the human emotions in the in the inside out version, empathy is almost exclusively derived from some form of sadness. We're usually not talking about empathy as it relates to to uh, to joy specifically, right? Like we're not talking about, hey, that guy had a really good day. Like, can you just empathize with him? <laughs> put yourself in his shoes. Like you also had a really good day and went jet skiing, and you know and got married or whatever else it's almost uh, exclusively about like you know sadness and that can be sadness from you know a personal moment it could be sadness from you know uh state of our nation or specific you know uh the way that our you know country and our world treats certain groups of people you know a lot of those things can then understandably lead to um you know anger and stuff like that but that sadness really is i think the core emotion that leads to um not just empathy as a whole, but like the reason why I think we 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 think in terms of empathy. Oh, absolutely, and you're. It's a great point. We don't think about empathy in terms of like, man. Okay, before you judge him, why don't you walk a mile in his gold laced shoes? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's definitely a, a facet of sadness, and I think that ties into the larger theme of the film because it, it also helps other people understand and empathize with you. That at the end of the day, it's part of the complexity of Joy's epiphany here. Yeah. 
sadness can be a bridge to happiness because it lets people understand what is going on in this increasingly complex internal world that we get a glimpse into. Uh, you know, it, one of the neat things about the movie is you get to peek into different people's heads and see how they operate. But unfortunately, in real life, that's not something we have access to. All we can do is signal to other people instances in which we need help or in which we need comfort or in which we just need the solace that comes from shared understanding and appreciation to help get us through those tougher moments. Uh, you know, really quickly on the sadness in a circle, it just – it. Um... I, I maybe the movie's going for this, uh, maybe not. Although it feels like it fits too well for it not to be purposeful. But uh, when I'm at my most sad is sometimes when or depressed or going through something is is sometimes when I become weirdly obsessed with things like where it's like <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna watch all of these movies or I'm gonna watch all this TV show I'm gonna read all these books or something. Uh, oh yeah, I like my my it, ability to play a sixty hour RPG video game. <clears throat> is sometimes directly correlated with how depressed I am. <laughs> but but when sadness, what they when sadness is in the circle, what do they give her to occupy her time? L- read all the manuals about the way Riley's head works, <laughs> and and that feels appropriate, right? Like anger is not going to do that, but sadness is, does sit there and read all of the manuals to understand how the world that they're about to get lost in operates. Well, and I love that because it speaks to the clockwork synergy of this movie. Like it, it works on a, a theme level because you're right. There's a lot of times when we're in down moods that it's easy to get fixated on something. It's just I'm going to throw myself into this and not think about what's going to happen. But the, the other side of the coin is it's also set up for the story of the movie. It, it's set up in payoff because sadness has read these mind manuals so when they get into the actual mind of or the the broader brain section for riley and have to navigate all of these hallways it turns out sadness has the expertise that they need and it helps prove why she is useful literally at the same time we're trying to establish why sadness is useful in a more metaphysical metaphorical way it just all works together so well. One of my favorite little moments on that note is like when joy is trying to get into the head of sadness to to find her she just lays flat on the ground and then she <laughs> she looks up and goes oh there she is like she doesn't even move location she just is like you know as i think of myself as happy i'm looking up right like i'm literally looking on my plane i'm walking around looking for her well what does sadness do what have i seen her do she just lays flat <laughs> on the ground so I need to get on that level and in that mindset and which is such a beautifully like elegant little moment that's just serves as a metaphor. Like she's, she's not thinking like sadness. And even though they're not that far away from each other, legitimately, literally, because she's thinking like joy and running around at, you know, eye level, she missed it. Yeah. It requires another form of empathy in a way of thinking about how somebody else experiences the world. And then I will say as a sidebar, I am always a sucker for characters in TV shows and movies impersonating other characters from the TV show and movie. It just like always works for me every time. Especially when it's a cast of comedians. Like this is almost wall to wall all comic performance performers. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> a lot of these people are like trained improv people and like Amy Poehler literally started an improv school. Um, that was on three coasts for a while. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, the, 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 that sort of like, um, 
trying to figure out you what the other characters mannerisms are like and then trying to uh filter an impression of that through what your character is capable of is like a fun little mind game um though i i does i don't want to be a bummer but like that does get to one of my key problems with this movie is that all of these all of these the emotions in the movie like i don't have any particular attachment to them um and that's uh it sounds like it's some sort of weird freudian confession but like uh, <laughs> like i'm i'm so deeply depressed i don't even know what anger looks like anymore um no i <laughs> I, I it sounds like but like i don't know who your, they are your controller has calcified it's because, it's because when they have these characters stand in for emotions and then they only sort of are allowed to wiggle in and out of that emotional framework a little bit and also i think this movie is aesthetically super bland like i really do not like the way this movie looks um all the characters feel like back of napkin drawings that the animators were like yeah i guess that's uh what the boss wants like they all feel like first drafts to me so like, i'm not like attached to the characters in the way that like I am even about like from much stupider, <laughs> I shouldn't say stupider, much simpler, less sophisticated Pixar movies, even done by Pete Doctor, like like Monsters, Inc. I know exactly I could describe you what Mike and Sully's characters are um, and also like w- the, how their aesthetics work. Right. I'm not particularly attached to the aesthetics of any character in this movie. And also, as a character, because they have to be stand-ins for one specific emotion, creates this weird thing where they're, like, 1.5 dimensional, where they're essentially, like, they don't... Because the character has to exemplify joy, there's this weird, like, whiplash effect throughout 90% of the movie where joy has to keep coming back, coming back, coming back. Whereas, like, I prefer if Bing Bong didn't exist... And I prefer if joy and sadness. Well, great, were great on a news! Journey. By the end of the movie, you got your wish. Peter. Uh yeah. I mean, that's one of the best parts of the movie uh, is when Bing Bong disappears. Uh, um, is know. is a <laughs> that's just, I'm just being a dick. Um, I don't. I want more Richard Kind in movies. Does that does that satisfy a sort of halfway ground? Um, but that's my point. Is that like I, that's that's what kind of keeps me from being connected here? Is that like these people these these characters aren't really characters they're sort of one-dimensional ciphers for an emotion which means i'm not really attached to them as characters and also on like just like an animation level not even an animation level an aesthetic level the animation is great it's pixar they know how to do wireframes right they know how to make really funny wireframes that's one of the, the some of the best bing bong stuff is like he's like oh and also i'm part dolphin and then he does a very funny canny dolphin impression despite the fact that he doesn't really look like a dolphin and like that's that's pixar wire work right i not really attached to any of the characters in any particular capacity so all of this internal world stuff doesn't click for me when we come back to riley on the surface level i'm like feeling for this kid this feels like a real kid who's like <laughs> experiencing the character growth that i want and it's weird because like the characters we're following most of the time aren't allowed to be well-rounded characters and then riley gets sidelined in her agency gets sidelined in her own movie though these characters are also riley so like i threw a lot out there but like that's kind of my core of why none of this emotional stuff works for me um and why i just wish that there's more riley time (laughs) i mean i feel like and i I, I don't I'm, tr- I'm trying to speak my words in a way that doesn't sound too patronizing because I don't I don't mean it to be Peter I really don't I, I 
I think like you're just looking for a different movie that's not there and that's that's fine maybe because this movie is not connecting with you but like when i see this i actually think that the way the character designs and stuff work is really is really strong because it's not they're not characters like pointedly they are they are facets of a character that we're seeing represented and so you you kind of need somewhat of a simple design because what they represent needs to do a lot needs to do a lot of things like you need um, you know that you see the colors of the memories and you see a lot of different areas where like their colors represent stuff and i think making them overly complicated designs and and giving the impression that they they are fully fledged characters like you know a bing bong who is supposed to be a fully fledged character even though it's one imagined by a three-year-old i think uh would would take away from the movie and i i think but even that but even well, hold on hold on one more thing using... I, okay yeah go on sorry i think the, and i think the riley agency thing gets really complicated because i think that's why it feels i'm with to you a there little bit, the riley agency thing is complicated i think very pointedly and i mentioned this early that joy is not controlling riley um that they are basically built to express or visualize uh, or explain what is going on as part of emotion. So, I mean, obviously you have to get on board with the fact that, like, these are feelings being represented by animated characters, right? Like, they're not necessarily controlling Riley. They really, they see Riley as a unique person. And so when Riley, you know, in the same way that, like, when Sadness can't stop herself from touching these things, no one can stop her. Because that's how Riley's feeling, and these are the expressions of her feelings in kind of a in a you know in an animated movie for us to see see inside. Like very pointedly, in some ways, they cannot necessarily affect Riley's agency. We're seeing a reflection of Riley's feelings being done, and I'm glad it's not played for something like you know Riley was having a good day, and then Joy accidentally flew out the tube, and now all of a sudden. Uh, you know her, her the, the the beings in her head that control her are trying to find joy because that would be a much less interesting and empathetic movie because that does imply that that like these people are controlling her because she was having it becomes a, great a demonic possession uh, story yeah or like so, you know one of those <laughs> it's a prequel to The Exorcist <laughs> which one yeah Bing Bong is uh Mr uh what's his name Mr Mr Han- Handy or whatever. Pazuzu. <laughs> yeah, Pazuzu, yeah Pazuzu has a nickname to, for to, uh, when he's just an imaginary friend it's like Mr. Mr. Happy or Mr. Handy or something sorry <laughs> Colin Aaron no I was I was just saying like it's not like one of those old Calvin and the Hobbes thing where like he takes off the head and there's two little people controlling his parents they're like I knew it like I knew these were aliens <laughs> in a robot body uh, no instead like when when I knew when, we were gonna meet Dave when the when joy and in the moment the possibility for joy leaves Riley because she just has she hasn't just like had a bad moment like she recognizes that like joy's gone i have now ruined my chance to leave a good impression to make friends in one moment at that same moment joy literally gets sucked out of kind of the her head or command center or her her focus so i don't think it's an agency issue i think we're watching a reflection of what's going on and if it was little people controlling riley I think that would be a lesser movie, but I, I just don't think that's what the movie's doing. So let me, let me double back a little bit and then I'll let Andrew jump in. Um, so the, one of my big problems with the aesthetic of all the characters is that they all rely on 
physical stereotypes that are fairly harmful to kids. Um, Amy Poehler's character of Joy, who's like, I think the most eminently likable for a kid because she's happy and sprightly and playful, is a uh, tall, thin, blonde woman. Sadness is a uh, short, uh, stout uh uh overweight or i don't know whatever a, 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 a uh woman of size um <laughs> uh mindy kaling is playing a uh like a mean cheerleader type um anxiety is played by this like i don't even know like it, it it's this like skinny uh anxious like wreck of a person it's like it, an anger is this like short angry man that's like a stereotype of like new yorkers or bosses like i i also i have a pet theory that anger was originally designed for ed asner to do the voice and then they found someone else i will looks, that could like be ed true asner. Because, well so i mean i think that's the thing is i think they actually all kind of look like there the the actors portraying them kind of yeah. all look like them with the exception i will give you of anger which could easily been have been played by ed Astor. <laughs> but amy poehler is shorter than meredith amy poehler is shorter than meredith or whatever in real life so like they couldn't mix it up at all like in all aesthetically it's like oh what would a happy person be oh there she's she's a tall blonde person who looks like um tinkerbell and she's wearing a flower dress like it's all just like this first draft shit that just and, and then it leads into physical stereotypes i think, it, I think and, it's just well, a blue dress uh and so. wearing and it's like this physical stereotype shit that's just like it's very exhausting for me and just uh one thing i also want to talk about today is riley's uh first date which is a short film that came out after the movie um and it's on uh disney plus as well along with uh inside out um riley's first date i think nails the 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 concept of this and then gets out of there before um it it gets into the the limitations of the concept and one of the things i really like about riley's first day i like a lot of things about it i think it's a much funnier move uh you know obviously per minute it's easier to be funnier for five minutes than it is to be for 90 minutes but and to um, have the whole concept explained in another movie uh yeah but it's still it's i think it's a more successful as a product than if th if that were the sequel right like sure like it still gets credit for being its own thing um so the the point is that like in that one also when you get to see like more of the command consoles and like the her parents had and like what's going on in uh uh the the, the boyfriend's head whatever his name is josh or whatever yeah but that's uh, i mean all that stuff that's all like that they like get away from those physical but characterizations and they start making jokes about how like their battle lines are not as clearly drawn as like riley's is like this rigid joy sadness anxiety anger disgust like and the rest of them it's sort of like they're all mixing they're feeding off each other's emotions like they're not like they're just sort of like fun characters in a control room setting which is like i think this works really well as a 30 minute comedy thing and then when it gets high-minded it stops working for me so but that that's all in inside out like one of my favorite scenes of inside out is that scene where they're having dinner and you're zooming into the parent's head and like literally almost everything from that. Like, I like that short, too, but almost everything from that short is the way that like sadness in the mom's head is kind of leading the control panel and anger. There's a lot of inferences that you can make from that, too, and that recognizing that like, you know, the representative gender in their parent's head is um, it's all either masculine or feminine, but you know, in Riley's head, it's all it's it's a mixture, and there's you know a lot of 
good uh, reviews and articles that mention is this kind of nodding to the fact that like Riley is um, is more non-binary than her parents are if like uh, and, and things like that. And I don't know if that's there or a touch or it's an interesting interpretation um, or if they just I, found a bunch of comedic styles and they were like, yeah, that, I mean, that could def- I don't want an angry woman. I want Lewis Black or I want Ed Hasner in my pet <laughs> I, theory. I, I, I think <laughs> that I think the casting could have played like, oh, they're going to be in a lot of the movie. The casting could have played a, a big part in it. But I still like I like that reading. They get quite credit a bit. for that for sure. I'm not I'm not yeah. taking that away. But um, regardless, I mean, that dinner, that dinner scene where in this case, joy and sadness are gone and the parents are communicating and it goes into their heads. I think that like those moments are redone in Riley's first date. Even the boyfriend has that moment or the the date person has the moment where uh, in Inside Out where it's a girl and you zoom inside their head and stuff like that. But I don't think that that's something that they didn't do in Inside Out. I think I think my biggest problem with Inside Out is the balance. So I really don't like the aesthetics of the inner world and like. Honesty Island and Goofball Island. It all it all leads back to my biggest core problem with Pete Doctor movies in general, which is like he got addicted to this idea that everything is a bureaucracy, which works really in a fun way for something like uh, Monsters, Inc., which feels like it's like half inspired by Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Um, and it's largely just a silly movie, but it's about characters. It's about three characters. Right. Um and then he got and then Up doesn't really fit in this mold, but Up is like a more wild movie. And a lot of people talk about how like they don't really like the last two thirds of Up. I'm not one of those people. I think Up's a, a, a lovely movie. Um, but uh, that's a problem with Soul as well, is that he just got addicted to this idea that like the afterlife is a big bureaucracy. And you're like, OK, and like the uh, the inside of your head is a big bureaucracy. It's like, OK. And then he decides to paint with these like extremely bland aesthetics the entire time. It, it, these worlds don't feel real to me. They don't inspire any sense of awe or majesty in me. So as soon as we get out of the control room, so it takes about 30 minutes for to them to come up with a contrived way to kick joy and happiness out of the control room into whatever yeah, land. I wouldn't say it's contrived, but go um, on. it takes about 30 minutes to get there. Um, then the movie loses, I think, the good mix, which is, I think, that I think is, is present in the short Riley's first date, which is like, I want 50% Riley, 50% in internals. Um, I want to see that the those two dynamics being frictional because I don't think that the internal bureaucratic uh hierarchies and industries and shit going inside her head is like either interesting to look at nor is it particularly interesting to think about until the last five minutes 10 minutes so there's like 40 minutes of dead space in this movie basically (laughs) yeah i mean i push push back on that a little bit well what's up i mean uh, let me let me start in one place is i think it's worth noting that when you look into uh, Riley's parents' heads, yes, there is more differentiation among the emotions in their heads, but they're also older. They're also already have been through the emotions are more complex than just these five slices that and never the twain shall meet. Super true. And so I think that's that speaks to one of the core themes of the film, which is that emotional maturity involves understanding that it's not segmented like this. That there yeah. is bleed between these different characters. And I would say, you know, I totally agree that uh, anger 
and fear and disgust are not really full-fledged characters. I think they're they're more comic relief and they serve a, a great purpose in the film. And I think that I love them and I love those characters and what they do, how they make me laugh, how, how they factor into the humor and general ideas of the film. But I think they're more there to be a B-plot, to, to be a little bit more in comic relief. But I, I think you do get more shades, no pun intended, of joy and of sadness that like yes joy is very chipper and very upbeat and yes sadness is understandably very downbeat and very dour at times but you see ways in which sadness is helpful you see ways in which joy is passive aggressive you see ways in which sadness has a a sort of common sense and a judgment that is brought to bear and you see places where joy hits a roadblock and has an epiphany i feel like you know, they are obviously rooted in the emotions that they personify, but that they get more of a dimension that allows them to have these journeys and epiphanies and gives it meaning. And I will say one of the things that I really like about the movie is the world that Pete Docter and his creative team and his collaborators construct here. You know, I know the aesthetic is very simple, but I think it connects with the elementalness that is at the center of Inside Out, that Everything is rooted in those five colors, and and I think the designs tend to reflect that. And and I love, frankly, the sort of buddy comedy portion of the world as they're uh, getting to explore how that aesthetic is brought to bear through all of it. And while we're there, like, I do think when it's just a a cute comedy that has, like, a a sweet soul to it, like, the first 30 minutes work like gangbusters for me. I I don't think it's particularly fun to look at, but, like... Most comedies aren't that fun to look at. <laughs> um, I, I think I think like the setup is very elegant and um, it kind of doesn't it, it doesn't start stepping its toes into the, into this muck that I think catches this, you know, the last two thirds of the movie in uh, until, yeah, like the last two thirds of the movie. Like you're right. Like there's like an elegance to the way it, it, it kicks off. Um these relationships and what dynamics we're going to be kind of unpacking for the rest of the movie when it starts. I just don't think it like performs that for the rest of the movie. Yeah. I mean, and I guess I would say like, I'm not trying to frame everything that I am saying about this movie as a, as a way to, uh, to, to disagree with what Peter said or something like that. But like, I mean, I, the thing about like this framed as a bureaucracy doesn't quite resonate with me just because like, I do feel like this movie is extremely successful saying, okay, so the, you know, emotion, uh, the two emotions, joy and sadness are ejected from the command center in the head. They're removed from this and they're wandering through the rest of the, your psyche or whatever else. Like I do think I love the way they kind of go through the different representations of that. But I don't think that there's not a point where someone goes fill out this X or Y form. There's a lot of people doing jobs, or things like that as a represent uh, representation of like you know uh, having a song stuck in your head or what dreams uh, are like or uh, what your imagination is or what abstract thinking is or a train of thought. There's a lot of like you know physical manifestations and representations of emotional and thinking and uh, cognitive concepts that we've given names to, which are a lot of fun. But it doesn't seem like there's any uh, you know order or besides what what you know what ultimately is happening in in riley's breads head some uh consciously uh and some subconsciously with like when you forget a, a moment in your life it's not a conscious decision it's like you know someone goes and throws that into the pit and that disappears when you stop 
uh, engaging with an imaginary friend that you've created, it's not conscious. It's just something that you start thinking and playing with them less and less, and pretty soon they're gone. And there's one thing I really love about this movie is the way it represents that as like both loss and growth. Because there's so many things in my life, and I'm sure it's the case with all of you guys too. When you when you look back, there may be something that you used to do all the time. Or some uh, an activity, a toy, a friend you used to play with, or something like that, and and eventually it just sort of went out of your life, and and so you know in those moments where like you you see the memory again, like when Joy is going through some of the old forgotten memories of like here was just a day of Riley um, drawing, you know that is that is a, essentially erased from existence for for everyone, but it was a a great little moment and at the time it was you know she was having fun drawing and maybe uh you know her parents were watching her go and sit and draw like that there is there is a weird loss that you experience as you kind of go through your life and these things gradually disappear until they're just all of a sudden gone and you know the way that dreams incorporate certain parts of your your psyche in that day and they come together in these weird abstract ways that you end up kind of remembering or kind of dealing with or stuff like that and sometimes you wake up scared and sometimes you wake up um feeling a sense of loss because you won the lottery or something and now you don't have the money that you thought that you had or something like that but I, I do think the way that this movie kind of approaches all, all those topics of what's working inside someone's head, I don't think it's set up to be like, isn't your brain like a like a giant corporation or anything like that? I just think it's a lot of expressions of that, uh, of metaphysical concepts in a physical space. And I think it's it's very uh, elegant and funny and clever and and melancholy a lot of times in the way that it represents those concepts. And to add on to that, I think the framework that connects with me or when I think about the movie is that it's more of a city or a community. You see yeah. different sections playing different roles. And I love the idea that the dreams are a movie studio. I yeah. love the idea that Imagination Land is, a, is kind of a big playground. I love the abstract thought section that is yeah. just so inventive and such a creative way to represent that part of cognition that, you know, how, how do you represent that? How do you visualize that? And, and I like the way you get to see little connections between them and how that impacts what Riley does in the real world. And again, I, I think it speaks to an interconnectedness at just about every level of this movie that, that I really, really resonates with me. Even like simple jokes like the train of thought and the, uh, which is a funny joke, especially in 2015 too, like the, oh shoot, we knocked over all these facts and opinions and they got mixed up and, <laughs> and you know, bing, oh, like, that's that happens all the time. But like one thing I like about that, I was actually just reading something recently or, or I forget if I was listening to a podcast and I, I'm noting I'm forgetting because that was talking about that like, um, that's actually something that happens to people, especially um quite a bit because a lot of times like we we hear the information but we don't rec remember the source necessarily so it's easy for those to get mixed up so the example as you get older that, too it gets harder and harder yeah we're like if if i saw something that like uh actually like this this fact is fake and i see that debunked eight times um i may remember the fact but not the, the situation it was used in yeah there's a lot of studies that show like um the the tr if if there's a in development story the take that hits you first uh is the take that you digest right 
Um, so like that was that was a big problem with the 2000 election because um, people heard for an entire day and then going into weeks that Bush was the winner, despite the fact that it was too close to call. Networks were like, well, we have to call somebody and they called yeah. Gore. And then within three hours, they called Bush. And then it was Bush, 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 Bush for a few days. And people forgot about the Gore. They just remembered that it was Bush or they just heard the, the Bush call um, because they didn't stay up till 2 a.m. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a cute little like it's a cute little joke. I think it's like a it's like a nice little nod at the fact that like you know that era that that um this movie was about to be dropped into um or i guess yeah, I don't, when this movie came out, i don't even know had, had trump started his campaign yet definitely um, not when they wrote and made it considering how long it makes but i mean that's but, what i think like, is so the, I, I think it's a cute joke but i just don't, i don't think the second two-thirds of the movie are like that clever as a comedy so like i can't I I'm but, like attached, I, mean, I, I stop being attached to anything because I don't think it's I don't think I don't think I, I think a lot of its observations are, are rather pat and it usually relies on the sense of forward momentum like literally getting on trains and falling down tunnels and blah 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 and I don't think the jokes are particularly interesting or the jokes are are uh not as clever as they think they are and then um not as funny as they think they are like them going into that that chamber of abstract thought where they all they all start becoming like hubist nightmares like that that's like a scene where i'm like i i'm only appreciating the fact that a bunch of animators got to like strut their stuff like a bunch of animators got to fucking show off but like i guess i guess i just don't see it at those like i don't think it's that interesting but you keep saying it like it's a like, I just don't find it that funny as a comedy. I mean, I don't find – what Pixar movie am I doubled over laughter And Even though a lot of them have a lot of clever, clever moments. I mean, I don't I don't know if any of these that are – I mean, Toy Story is a comedy, uh, ostensibly. But, I mean, I, I don't remember going, this, this stuff is so hilarious. Normally what I'm laughing at or what I find, like, what I would say is funny, I guess I should say, is like – the representation of toy culture or toy things and like this this world that they're alive that i'm i'm recognizing the cleverness and the uh, vision that they're putting on display in creating a world where toys are animate and have agency and stuff like that and well, so there's a like, couple things going on like i think monsters inc and monsters university are both way fucking funnier and a lot of these movies the reason i find them funnier isn't maybe necessarily because they got better joke writers but it's because i'm actually attached to the characters and like comedy is about character well i know but you but you said that you don't you don't think the characters are that good and then you i i just i guess i'm just I don't think saying the jokes like, are good and i don't think the characters are good and i don't think the aesthetics are good yeah, I, I, so like I i'm just kind of sitting there watching the screen and my soul is being sucked out of me for like long sequences before i'm waiting for something clever to happen like and i like the dream sequence it's very that's very clever and it's very cute and like the idea of the <laughs> putting bing bong in a cage on top of that giant <laughs> clown like that's a fun image that was them being inventive and the clown interrupts the the dream and it becomes a nightmare and it's a total fucking accident like that's very cl- funny to me because that's actually how dreams work where it's just like 
well, it was a nice dream, and I was in the park with my girlfriend, and there was a puppy, and we played with the puppy, and then we went, we got a hot dog, and then there was a spider that crawled out of the hot dog, and it kept growing. <laughs> just like, there's no, there's no, like, narrative reason for the clown to exist in there. It's just a clown happened to fucking destroy the set that day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I do, I like, I like all that. I mean, I, I actually that think, like, works they, for me. They don't spend that much time on any one moment, right? And it's not supposed to be – nothing's supposed to be like, here's a psychological deep dive on abstract thought. They're literally passing through the different aspects of of her her subconscious and conscious. And as such, like, they're experiencing these fun physical representations of them. So, you know, the dreams being a movie studio where if someone breaks in, anything can happen – uh, that's a lot of fun. Um, I like, you know, the, there's the more melancholy stuff of like, um, uh, the, the, the memory pit where like things just disappear. And so you lose all these things to just the, the fact that you, you can't remember what, what'd you eat for lunch Thursday, three weeks ago? You have no idea. Was it a good lunch? Did you have a good conversation with, with someone in your family or a friend or a work person? Like, uh, and that's why I think like you mentioned, like you didn't like the islands, Peter, I really like that because I just I do feel like, again, it's taking the complex, all the different things that make up who we are and reducing it to, you know, some core emotions and some core moments as a way to kind of tell a story and to tell uh, to 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 share a theme. But like, I really like I do think there's probably maybe not one formative moment, but that concept of like, you know, certain moments in your life, good, bad moments, whatever else it is that ultimately like, you know, your friendship with this person, uh, you know, your first best friend in kindergarten had an effect on the way that you viewed what friendships were like. And then, you know, the next friend that you had or multiple friends, like sometimes you tried to behave the same way. And maybe that, that, that person was an individual. So they interacted differently. And so that like, sometimes you may have overextended or underextended and you, you know, trying to figure out the way that, you know, that your interaction with people, um, uh, how that maintains a friendship or stuff like that. Like, I, I'm sure there's a lot of formative stuff for good and ill that like has ultimately impacted us. And like, you know, I, I've, I mentioned at the beginning, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention like, especially like as a parent of two kids. Now, when I saw this movie in theaters, like my daughter was one, my young, my oldest was one. Uh, she was just turning one. And on top of that, uh, we had just moved and uh, she was starting a new daycare that she was struggling at a little bit. Like, you know, a daycare where before when we went to pick her up, it was kind of like I want to keep playing or hanging out with these kids. And now the second we would walk in would burst into tears at like, you know, which happened for a few weeks. And that's remarkably tough for a parent. And as my kids, you know, as I've had a second kid and they've gotten older and we we watched this movie, like I just definitely relate so much to that concept of i don't want him to feel sadness like you know my oldest daughter maya who's been on the show once for a short period of time <laughs> like you know all Our of her interaction guest. sorry Andrew. yeah former guest maya armstrong um she <laughs> she you know she does we're in quarantine so i hear all her school interactions and i um she her way of interacting with friends right now is they she has like a special there's a Facebook messenger for kids that we have approved friends on there that they call and video chat each other and then they go on shared servers and play Roblox together. I'm around. I'm not like paying attention all the time. 
uh, to every little moment, but I'm around so much of her interactions. And, like, there's times where her and her friends have fights, and I have to hear those fights develop. And, like, it's like, do I go in and let them work it out? Do I stop it? And, like, you know, they're expressing, like, feeling hurt at something the other one did, normally because they don't, they didn't pick the right Roblox game or something stupid like that. And you're just like, okay, like, they need to experience this or stuff like that. And in the same note, like, you know, when I hear, um, you know, I'm in the same area for when she does all her school stuff, too. And, and it's amazing how, like, when uh, they have a reward for kids that, like, they can pick one of five things. And one of those is something called Lunch Bunch, which means that, like, you pick to have a lunch with the teacher over video chat. And Maya just got picked again, like, where some kids, like, I want to hang out with Maya. And you're just like, oh, cool. She's developing friendships, even in this, like, really tough environment. And you you feel such a relief. And it's like, you don't want her to feel bad. You don't want her to have those moments where you fought with your friends or friendships that ended. And, and while also recognizing I need to let them do these things and, like, how hard that is because you you do end up like an Amy Poehler in like a Parks and Recreation at this where you're like, it's okay. It's okay. Things are fine. Like, let's just go and do this. And you don't like that's sometimes your instinct because, um, you know, and I love the way it's represented in this movie is like a character who that's the only way they know how to think because they love this person. They love Riley. They, they are the personification of joy. They know how good it feels to feel joy. They are creating these these things. And, like, you know, that's just a constant thing, I think, that, like, as a parent that, like, you have to deal with. That, like, God, my kid's going to be sad. What if they get too sad? What if they get depressed? What if they take action um, on that depression that ends up having a negative effect? Um, you know, something small like running away. In that case, like, Riley, who when she leaves, she could have got, you know, mugged or, or kidnapped or lost or something like that. And you just... Are in this, like, how do I approach? How do I interfere? How do I protect them? And you are always worried that if you get the balance wrong, they're going to create the equivalent of a core memory that ends up being like, you know, that joke about like, well, they're probably going to have to deal with this little moment in counseling someday that you've heard, you know, sitcom parents and real parents probably say, because it's true. You're like, fuck. Did I did I just cause something that's going to be something formative for them the rest of their life because I interfered too quickly or didn't interfere or said the wrong thing in a tough moment or whatever else? And when I go back and like when I look back through my own childhood, there's a lot of good stuff I remember. But I also like I have like little moments where I like when I think back and I'm still mad at my parents for doing something or like, yeah, that sucks that my brother did that or stuff like this. And you're like. All the moments I remember, and sometimes these negative ones, come to the surface and clearly still have an impact. And is that good? Is that bad? Did I learn something from that? Did that ultimately make me more empathetic or more understanding? And, like, I think this movie, like with any movie, I'm bringing a lot to the table here. But I just see it so well represented uh, in this movie that like also my kids will watch over and over and love the books about it and stuff like that like it's speaking to them uh, as a as like young kids and while I have recognition of that as I mentioned earlier from moving myself and just a lot of the things that that happen here I now also have the reflection of like uh, I'm not I'm not just the Riley I'm the joy who's like 
trying to figure out how to make that balance work. Yeah, and like that's that's something that's that's really that's beautiful. parents' corner. That, I, that's something oh, that's really beautiful, and that's why <laughs> I, I that's another reason I really like Riley's first date is because I think that this movie is actually written from the perspective of a parent. It's not written from the perspective of a kid. It's written from the perspective of a parent. Well, you like, did pause it to share... me that kids wouldn't like this movie. And at the very least, I can say my kids absolutely love this movie. Yeah, because kids like bright colors and shit. Um, That's kind of a dick. <laughs> just kidding. I'm kidding. Just being a dick. Yeah, you um, just shine a flashlight at your kids for two hours, right, Aaron? Those dumb dumps? As long as you put appropriately colored uh, filters on them, then sure. <laughs> Look, tried I, here's what I got to say, children? Peter. Uh, you no, have no fucking idea how wrong you are because... You don't know how hard it is to keep their attention for movies in general without them wanting to do something else. This is one <laughs> of the few movies that actually does keep their attention. For but them. my point is more that this is a movie written from a parent's perspective. Well, yeah, and I'm a child did not about, write this. And I'm curious if this is a movie that actually is. I use the analogy as someone with depression and anxiety. I use the analogy of a toolbox. That's my particular uh, analogy. It's one of the only good things I got from my shitty psychologist when I was 16. Uh, and then I kept it as I got better psychologists. Uh, the toolbox is is something that's like... Would you okay. say that your concept of the toolbox and those interactions with the psychologist formed, say, I don't know, like a core memory? <laughs> core memory that's been only touched by sadness um no i'm just kidding uh is there is there uh i was gonna say is there is there uh an, an emotion for like wonder that that, uh, that a man was allowed to talk to children um so uh probably probably a combination of fear disgust and anger <laughs> yeah they're all working together it's it, they're they're uh collaborating yeah, like on like one of those swirl balls peter uh sorry five out of five <laughs> movie um my point is more and I, i'm not i'm not uh taking anything away from from your children uh, i'm sure that they uh sincerely love this movie and that they're having a deep emotional connection with it and like that's beautiful right like i had pixar when i was a kid i'm very happy that um Kids today have stuff like this and they're and, and that like Pixar actually stepped up the competition and that they're not just dealing with um whatever DreamWorks was doing in like yeah, two thousand to two thousand five. I mean, we still have that. Like they like Boss Baby, but not as much as this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean Boss Boob Baby is about a bureau you want to see a kid's movie about bureaucracy? Peter, by definition, go watch Boss Baby. Because he's he's presumably <laughs> a boss. Who is who happens to be a baby? He gets a lot, bosses, yeah, he has a lot of dispatches and memos. He's got a lot of like that is a movie about babies as bureaucracy. <laughs> that boss. Baby. I mean, I don't know if we can compete with that with Inside Out, a, a baby who is also a boss. It's just such a zany, <laughs> out there premise. <laughs> Get this: he's uh, voiced by uh, someone who should not be left alone with babies, Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin. Um, what? From the movie where he was part of a sort of thing like that? That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, um, <laughs> Glenn Baby, Glenn Ross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, it is weird when in uh, there's a big scene in um, Boss Baby where uh, this uh, character who's animated to look like uh, Jack Lemmon has a really bad day. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought it was uh, pretty weird that they had David Mamet write a children's film. But, you know, you do what you have to do. <laughs> Have you guys seen the SNL skit where Alec Baldwin essentially does that same the same yeah, skit with the elves with the elves and Amy Poehler is in yeah that yeah skit? yeah 
Um, yeah, that's true. It's kind of cute. He he breaks, but in a way that like only Alec Baldwin can break, where he just does the Glengarry Glen Ross monologue for a little bit instead of doing <laughs> the the parody version. Uh, <laughs> the worst scene of that movie though is where he's like, "Well, first prize, you get a binky. Second prize, I let you borrow my favorite blanket." Third prize, you get a fucking really late term abortion, and it just, oh, God. it just felt, I, yeah, I know, I agree, you guys. That scene should not have been. In yeah, I, I can't be movie. mad at you. I have to be mad at the writers of Boss Baby because I haven't seen the film, so I cannot disprove that yeah. that doesn't happen in the movie. The only way that you can prove it didn't happen is to watch all of Boss Baby, and I will not. Um, I think I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Yeah, just be so, disgusted on the sideline. There's a there's a Griffin Newman rule on Boss Baby, which is I think you watch the first 15 minutes or so, and then you stop watching it. You pretend it's just a short film. Because um, there's like here's the thing: it's not like as bad as some of the. Here's the thing about DreamWorks: they still are producing subpar garbage that thankfully my kids do like. I, I my kids do get bored with the trolls of the world. They watch it a couple times. They like a couple of the songs, and then they they move on. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the stuff that they watch over and over is the uh, Steven Universe movie and Moana and Inside Out and stuff like that. So that's 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 very helpful for me as a parent. Uh, Even if the the reverse was true, I'd keep them and still love them. But it's nice that it's that way. Yeah. Okay. so so here's here's why I think I think we can maybe point us towards the end. Um, Here's my, because I would like for uh, you two guys to kind of wrap up. So I'll give my final thoughts and then we can kind of, you two can kind of. Uh, I mean, I, I want to go through a few scenes because I feel like there's a lot of good moments we didn't, we didn't quite get to before we do okay. final thoughts. So let me, let, let me, yeah, let me, uh, let me uh, say a thing and then I'll say, let's do our final scenes and then we'll get to the final thoughts. Um, sure. Okay. So, oh yeah, but I, I feel like this is a movie that's like written from an adult perspective and a parent's perspective and. That's why it hits uh, it hits you guys uh, so hard from like an adult perspective because you're reflecting on how you were raised or in, in Aaron's case like how what it's like to be a parent and like how your how your kind of perspectives on that have shifted and how like a lot of the experience of being older is like you know, I wish that I knew what I know now when I was younger, like that sort of, uh, I, I wish that I could impart this, this sense of patience, or I wish this lesson could have, could have been given to me younger. Um, and that's a beautiful sentiment. It's, it's one of the great tragedies of life is that, you know, children don't listen to their parents and that parents don't how, know how to talk to their children and that like only a little bit breaks through and if you have a really good relationship with your kid a lot breaks through right or it breaks through in a subconscious way that doesn't come out for uh decades well and um, just also um you know on that note really quick like one of my favorite moments is the idea that this memory and the way you remember it, when you start analyzing it like there's more there to unpack so like there's the you know i mentioned already joy looking at that core memory that was the uh, you won the big hockey game oh it's actually like that feeling of joy was predicated on sadness. Like that moment wouldn't have happened without feeling sadness. But I do think that like that, that really goes back into a lot of things. Like I think when you start like, and this is a you know a big part of therapy is like when you start analyzing some of these moments, sometimes you recognize that like a really sad moment in your life uh, was, was ultimately ended up being, you know, critically important. And, uh, or there was joy that came from that sad moment. Like, you know, all of us are I, I all of us are married like we got married after a, a string of, I would assume, um, relationships that didn't work out, you know, 
and uh, oh no all of my relationships worked out perfectly <laughs> not a single one of them ended in disaster yeah i mean I'm sure of that like you know and i and i know like i don't want to sound like the fucking uh a semi-sonic song about like every new beginning comes from some some other's beginnings ends but like that's true like we didn't at the time that the moment happened even if it's a sad moment we didn't have the full picture and so like you know if those relationships would have worked out our lives would be demonstrably different and we, we get that and in the same note that sometimes like some super happy moments in your life that you remember like sometimes you you think back on that like how many times uh, have some of you guys think back to something like that was fun as a kid and you're like I can't believe my parents fucking let me do that that was remarkably <laughs> unsafe like or or dangerous or like <laughs> I, you know, I almost drowned like, two or three times as a child. Um, very, <laughs> very glad that I didn't. But you know, it didn't. yeah, like we are too. Like are I, too. like I remember um, there was this moment that like there's so many of those moments where sometimes you see old pictures and you think about them. And I'll tell you, I mean, having kids does like do this too, where you're like, wait a second, like I, I really know what a four year old is like. What did they <laughs> like? Like what did they let me do? Like I, I remember like my parents put me and my brother i was four my brother was two on two just horses we didn't have helmets like they weren't ponies they were like and we were just like no one was leading them they just told us like to do the kicking and stuff like that and do all the things and i was like this is the 80s and i, I was just telling that story to my wife and this is a perfect example of like they, how the fuck did they let my two-year-old brother just ride a horse? Like, <laughs> what? Like, and I was four. Like, and I remember the horse, the horse would buck and I was scared. I remember being scared and they were like, it'll be fine. Like, and, and as, and like, as I'm telling the story to my wife, I'm like, why would they think it would be fine? Like, and I, there's pictures of us on these giant horses and it's like, what the fuck? Like, and, you know, I remember that moment, like, at the, you know, when I think back of that, it's just being scared. And eventually my brother and I switched horses because I was too scared to be on the jo- the, the horse that bucked sometimes. And so they put a two-year-old on there who wasn't scared. And, because you, were, they, you, and you were four years old. You were not in the position to be like, well, you know, I'm the older brother here. I should probably take the bigger horse. Like, <laughs> Yeah, like, the reason why Luke wasn't Let scared is on because his... His idea of fear wasn't developed enough to understand <laughs> mortality, not because he was braver than me. Um, and I went on this slightly calmer horse. They were called Salt and Pepper. And, like, I remember this moment as, like, a little bit of a feeling of shame that, like, because I, you know, that feeling of, like, oh, fine, I guess we'll switch your younger brother and the other horse and a moment of fear. And then, like, when I was telling this, I just recently was telling the story to my wife and it was the first time i thought about it in a long time and that long-term memory thing i was like wait a second what the fuck was going on like you start having those like how was any of this okay i really like that part as, as the metaphor is like you remember these moments and these feelings and then when you start like in this case like pivoting the memory all of a sudden you know with with new context of time um it, it starts to feel different sometimes that's for better sometimes that's for worse sometimes you just all of a sudden remember a day suddenly out of nowhere that you didn't remember and you're like oh yeah that was a day i had and that was that was nice and that was that's something i may never think about again for the rest of my life but it was nice that i remembered that moment and stuff like that as much as the parody of like the clark griswolds and the family sitcoms of the world you do start having this thing where like you feel almost obligated to videotape stuff in your kid's life and then you watch them back and you're like 
fuck, I never would have remembered any of this stuff. Like, this was a normal, common thing that was happening for a few months at the time, at a, at a time. But if I went to videotaped it, it just would have been gone forever along with all the other memories. And then you start feeling bad because you're like, how much of my kid's life have I forgotten? <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, no. So, anyways, yeah, I like, I, I do, I think this movie is just full of those little things that, like, you know, they're little moments, but um, that just are reflecting on something that I think we all experience. But I guess, you know, for me, and I guess Andrew would say it probably too, is that, like, I take those little moments and I just feel like just a sense of, like, recognition that they got a part of what it means to be human so right no i I totally agree and and one of the things i love about the movie is i I feel like it's so rich that there's little things like that that you notice on multiple watches where you say okay you know I, i initially processed this as just oh joy and sadness work in tandem with one another and you don't think of it in those terms and there's complexity uh, to it, but but in a sort of unassuming way. But you go back and you're like, oh, they're recontextualizing these memories. Oh, Bing Bong fading into the memory dump is a sign of growth and maturity in a way that you're just, you know, bawling at the the sacrifice and not really processing the broader implications. That there's there's all these little things. I wanna I wanna give that moment because I know it's a lot of people's favorite mo- moment of the movie, and like it's definitely one of my favorite. And I. Richard Kind's performance is so goddamn good in this movie, but I, like, there's a way when he realizes that the wagon won't go up because they're singing the Bing Bong song, The Powers to Magic, and he realizes that he can't go with Joy. He can't be a part of Riley's world anymore. And um, he says, uh, and you know, Joy's starting to get frustrated because they can't make it up. And there's a there's a he, there's a reading of a line, you know, the there's the great uh, you know, take her to the moon for me and stuff like that. That's so obviously great. But the way that he reads, one more time, Joy, like it almost sends me over the edge just in that moment because you just get in that sense that that's a person resigned to his his fate and trying not to let someone else know that he's about to make a sacrifice. And I also think in that same way, Andrew, that you said, like, he represents, like, in that moment, it represents growth and how you have to give that. It also represents, um, you know, it, it he, it is sad because, yes, he's imaginary, and yes, Bing Bong does not have a place anymore in Riley's life. Maybe someday he'll get lucky and get resurrected because she writes a children's book about Bing Bong when she finds some old drawing. But in general, you know, he is imaginary. But he also represents that moment of something, uh, parts of us that are that are are dying, like... I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but that is such an important part of growth. Like, it is true that we move past these childish things, but it also, like, there's a, there's a reason there's a melancholy, there's a reason there's a sadness, because those things are gone and dead forever. I'm never going to have all the same action figures and Ninja Turtles and spend an entire day with my brother uh creating elaborate plots like even if we got all the material and money and all the stuff to buy it like our brains just don't work that way anymore like we would have a lot we wouldn't be nine years old or seven years old and and um coming at it from a place of just like kids doing this because it's the best thing they could be doing that day and like it's good i like don't necessarily do that anymore because i don't have the time and you know and and i i have other things that are things I'm more interested in now, but like reflecting on your childhood, your young adulthood, your, you know, teenagers, whatever else, there's a lot of good memories, but even the good memories ultimately 
become these things that are like um um but you know i just i do think that like the reason why that moment is so sad is that everyone has a bing bong everyone has so many bing bongs in their life that like if you if you remember it at all you recognize that it that it's essentially like died for you you're just never going to have that moment or that exact feeling back again and that's okay that's part of growing up but it's also okay to feel whistle, wistful and sad uh, that that there's a there's a sacrifice that happens growing up, you know, you know, in in the time that it's happening, it just feels like a standard process of gaining and losing interests in things, and it's only in retrospect that you kind of like see it as just um, something that doesn't exist anymore, even though it's still uh, part of you, and it's like that expression that like I'm sure you guys have seen on. You know, I don't even know where it originates from, but like uh, I definitely see it on Twitter and stuff like that. And it always gets me every time because, you know, that that feeling of like, I forget exactly what it says, but it's something along the lines of you don't know this, but there was a time that you and your friends played together and it was the last time that that ever happened. Like you didn't know it while it was happening, but it was the last time you did X or Y. And that is such an evocative feeling because there was a point where my my high school friend, my my elementary school friend, this person was the last time we talked and I had no idea that was going to be the last time we played X or did this or Y. And I, in a, in a time where I think part of adulthood is recognizing when things should be celebrated, you leave a job, people have a happy hour, they throw you a goodbye party, you um, get married, there's a party like where these huge sea changes in your life are marked by occasion. And, you know, either celebration or mourning, you start recognizing all these moments in your life that that in retrospect were deserving of that same, you know, marking of time that just disappear into the ether like bing bong. And like there are moments where you uh, have the (laughs) even later there are moments to reconnect or there's moments to try and see um if that that nostalgia if that part of your childhood is still continuing or if it is just this this closed off thing if 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 the period has been placed on that sentence or if um there's still more more to write and like i've had multiple experiences of like my best childhood friends reaching out or me reaching out to them and then us living literally a mile or two apart. Because I, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. I moved to Chicago. It was like a pretty good pipeline for, you know, 70% of everybody I ever knew to eventually end up in Chicago, right? There were times where I'd, we'd, we'd take, set up plans and someone would cancel or like something like that. And it's like, I didn't realize even later that the period had already been placed on the sentence. <laughs> um, I, it, it seemed like there was more to write, but it was truly gone. No, and I, I think there's something universal about that is even, you know, I, I have moved for college and moved for other parts of my life, but uh, you don't, even when you're just switching schools, even when you're graduating between middle school and high school, even when it's just the summer and, and people move away because that's how life works, there's all of these landmarks that we go through. There, there's these segmentations between different parts of our lives and we're not always aware of them. And, and one of the things that really strikes me about the movie is just watching the the formerly colorful memories sink to the bottom of the memory dump, slowly turn gray, slowly fade, and then almost dust away. Uh, not not to go too dust in the wind about it. Uh, and, and it's a very striking image for 
how how small things that were once valuable just kind of yeah. fade away over time and you don't even necessarily process it you don't realize it but you know there, there's a finite amount of space in our brains even as it's a, a maze for the the little personified characters who are wandering through them and sometimes you have to make room for the next place you're going to grow the next place you're going to evolve the next place you're going to change it is melancholy and it's tough to to witness at times but that's one of the things i love about this movie is it balances in the same way uh, the the moral balances the need for joy and the need for sadness is something that works in tandem it balances the melancholy of losing these things with the catharsis of how it it makes us grow and makes us more mature and and gives us more places to expand as human beings yeah um so yeah i I, let me let me just kind of wrap up like my qualms with the movie um and then hand it off to you guys because i do ultimately want this to be and in a positive note, um, so I, I, I do think that the movie has a genius to it, especially in the first act. Uh, the setup is, is is really charming. It's a great comedy setup. The cast is grossly overqualified. Um, it's just that it never really strikes out into a sense of wonder. This fails, I think, what the key test for me of what a kid's movie should be, which is, do I want to exist in this world? Um, obviously there are kids movies like Return to Oz where it's clearly like a horror experience and I don't want to live in Return to Oz and I don't want to live in the monster house. I don't want to live in Coraline's weird crawl space, uh, with, uh, the creepy, uh, button eye parents. Um, but those are horror movies. I mean, most kids movies, I think that the, a good rule of thumb is, do I want to, do I find this imaginative world to be awe-inspiring? Do I want to live in it? Do I want to sort of soak in it? So just to be clear, hold I on. Don't. I'm, not trying to inter- I'm not trying to interrupt your final thoughts, but to to be clear, you're saying you don't want to live in an you know imagination land type world and a world where someone you have a crush on uh, can be cloned. I would die for Pete. <laughs> no, this is that's creepy. Um, I just I, the world isn't the world doesn't have any sort of aesthetic a- appeal to me, and like conceptually, it doesn't feel real enough that something like that would be. Like, that would come, that, like, possible curse-blessing, I don't know which way it would end up after a period of time, like, that doesn't sound appealing to me because I don't want to live in the, the surrounding universe. It just feels like a, a strange video game level. It doesn't, it feels like an unplace to me. In a way that, weirdly, <laughs> Wreck-It Ralph feels more like a real place than this does to me. It's very strange. To, but, um, and I, 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 like, you know, Monsters, Inc., previously. I mean, they're by the both as real right wait sorry what do you mean like they're both as real and that they're both like the representation of what goes on inside uh oh yeah, inside, yeah, yeah. In, inside of like chords for video games yeah yeah but like <laughs> yeah. using the comparison it's totally how electricity works yeah <laughs> <laughs> but using the the representation like of a, it feels like a strange uh video game level is is a little ironic considering wreck it ralph actually exists and i think wreck it ralph feels like more of a lush world that i like to play around in um but I just don't want to exist in this world, in, in this this inside out world. Like it doesn't particularly feel like in any way awe inspiring or fun to me, or or in any way believable. And I don't think the characters are are particularly interesting. And it's it doesn't it doesn't really click on any level. It does feel like I made a joke earlier, but it feels like it's a, it's a Zoloft commercial at a certain point. And I I just don't um I don't I, I 
it, that doesn't that doesn't um, give me the sense of awe that I go to Pixar for. Where uh, since I want to leave a Pixar movie feeling like my world has gotten a little bigger, and with this, I feel like my world got a lot smaller. Um, but yeah, like Aaron, Andrew, what do you what, what's yeah? What, what did this I'll, movie give you that it didn't give me? I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense in in a way because you don't want to exist in this world, and this world is the representation of your own thoughts and and head. And I think it's fair to say that you don't want to exist in that world any more than you have to. So, uh, <laughs> it's already I mean, a, a, gra- like, a grand curse upon me. Ultimately, what you're saying, <laughs> ultimately what you're saying, is that you don't want to have to spend any more time with yourself than you have to. And I can't argue with that. I I wouldn't try, Peter. I hope uh, I like spending time with you, but um, you know, I can't force you to like the same things that I like, which includes <laughs> spending time with yourself. At least until we get to the sequel to Inside Out, which is Inception. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that's when I can go inside Peter's world and find out that it's only abstract thought. Um. Inception would be incredibly funny because the characters would be arguing in the in the control room, and then uh, Leonardo DiCaprio would just walk up and place a single ball inside that like massive rotating library of memories. <laughs> that would be it. That would be the whole heist. So I guess for my final thoughts, I talked a lot about the parental aspects as a parent that, that there's a lot of recognition here. And I, I mentioned as I was telling the plot, there's essentially kind of two themes running through. But like uh, one thing that uh, for my final thoughts, I think it makes sense to touch on. is like I do really like the representation of what it feels like to be a kid in a sea change type situation like um, you know, I recognize so much about like how like these moments in your life when you're a kid or either looking back or experiencing them, you know, at some point when it's easy to say like, well, this was my whole world and it was your whole world. Like, you know, for Riley in this movie, she had spent 12 years of her life in Minnesota. She established hobbies that other kids were interested in because of the ge- geographical location. She had friends. You know, she's looking to grow and move on from that. And I, you know, I think one thing that, uh, you know, a move is is the exact type of thing that for most kids ends up being a difficult thing. And, and that can be a, a change in school or a bigger move. And again, I experienced one when I was younger, when we moved from Kalispell, Montana to Bismarck, North Dakota, when I was seven. Um, but those those moments are tough. And like emotions as a whole, when you're that age, are so much bigger. And so like, I really like that the way that's depicted in this movie. And I feel like it resonates quite a bit. And I know that's a very simplified way to say things. But I like, you know, we talked a little bit about when we see inside the mom and the dad's head that like there's anger, but it's not Lewis black. You know, it's just someone who gets perturbed and has a little more rationality to it. And where everything like that, that Riley experiences at first, it's just a, a matter of, I don't like the broccoli. You're making me eat the broccoli. I'm going to scream and throw the broccoli. And then eventually like even, you know, her expressions of anger are more just shoving a plate and running upstairs and, and, talking you know somewhat still cogently and stuff like that and i think you know um in general that that that's that's what happens is that we essentially like kind of make peace in some ways with our own emotions sometimes with uh you know the help of therapy sometimes with just maturing and recognizing um that you know 
this isn't the worst day of your life. This isn't the saddest day of your life. This is, you know, that you can start kind of in some ways uh, recognizing chains of events that start happening with emotion. You know, the, I don't want to say like the five stages of grief or something, but like I'm going to feel a lot of things. And even though the feelings themselves are not any less uh, real than they were in age, sometimes you can see a light at the end of the tunnel a little more. And sometimes you can't. And that's, you know, that's that's another thing, too, that I think, you know, this this movie kind of doesn't talk about the way that, you know, uh, emotions can be impacted by, uh, you know, uh, by brain chemistry and stuff like that, which which I think is a little bit too complex to take on for a kid's movie. I, I recognize the point that I've seen criticism that, like, you know, that um, that, you know, anger or fear, some other stuff can come come more from just circumstantial, but just brain chemistry doing uh, doing things that you weren't, weren't expecting. And, I, you know, this movie doesn't say that that's that's not possible, but I can recognize that a little bit as a criticism that 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 is just a big thing because our brains are the evolutionary mush to some extent that just have all these weird vestigial things and break down very easily and don't do things that we want. But I think if you're just speaking from a, you know, high level, like general standpoint, I really love the idea of um, trying to figure out a way for your emotions to exist in a way that allow you to go about your life not behaving in or feeling them in the same way that you that you did as a child while still recognizing that those emotions are still distinct parts of who you are and how you experience life. And um, one thing I'll just say, just because I've been consuming a lot of it lately because again my six-year-old i guess i will uh i guess i will mention kids in some aspects but like uh we've been watching a lot of master chef junior with her which she really really likes and has taken interest in cooking and you know there's these moments where like these kids you can't help but watch the show and go fuck like these are these are i think nine through 12 year olds who are like getting judged on their ability and getting kicked off the show and like are crying while you know and they're 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 nicer they're not like screaming like you call this a quiche throwing in the kid's face and they're running out you know emotionally scarred but like they are constructively giving feedback and they're letting them cry and stuff like that and i i've never watched any of these shows and i don't know i have no connection to gordon ramsay whatsoever but i i did kind of like read up a little bit about it because i'm just like how is how is how does this work and i you know Everyone who every kid who grew up or has been on the show talks about it as such a positive, like nurturing experience for their art. And I read some stuff that Gordon Ramsay was saying about like the worst thing you could do when a kid is expressing like legitimate sadness for something that that, you know, they are sad about and are feeling it is to try to. Uh, you know, put a blocker up in that sadness. So, like, that it when he's, like, saying, hey, you know, sorry, you're kicked off the show, like, it actually wouldn't be helpful for him to go, oh, no, I mean, everything I said was a lie, I'm just having a bad day, or you can be back on the show a little bit, or give them false hope about, like, well, you maybe come back on next season or something, because this is, you know, this, this 12-year-old who's crying is, you know, you don't want to see them cry. That's tough to see. Um, and he says, like, it's important to let them express what they're feeling and to still be there to support and comfort them and to give them space when they need to and be there when they're not. Because if you don't do that, that's when they start to develop um, 
uh, problems around it, where they see this thing as this thing that they felt shame over for crying in front of people, or they felt like they did something wrong that was unavoidable and they need to make mistakes. And that's where, you know, that's where those, those moments become, you know, uh, core memories that have a really negative impact on the way that you start seeing the world that, you know, I can't cry because, or I failed, or I did all these things. And that one of the easiest way you can do that is by either not letting them talk through it, not being there supportively or acting like, you know, the way they're expressing it is wrong. And, and, you know, that, seeing this movie in close proximity to, you know, seeing these real kids um, go through that a lot just ended up speaking to me a lot because like, I really like the moment when Riley comes back and is like, you're trying to keep me happy. You're trying to keep me from the fact that you guys, you know, uh, that you guys want me to be happy and that's so much pressure and I'm not happy. And I had this terrible moment and I didn't feel like I could talk to you. And I, I love the way his, their parents are like, you know, not going to like, okay, well, we're going to punish you later for trying to run away or, um, or going, no, no, no. Like we're, we're happy. Like trying to put on a brave face. Like they, they recognize that this was a tough moment. They share how they've been feeling as well. And I think you could, you know, impart some recognition that they probably should have shared that a little bit earlier and stuff like that. And like, I really think that kind of like recognizing that, um, in a time when like, a lot of us grew up that like kids emotions when they're not joyful or even sometimes when they're joyful are meant to be tempered. Like, you know, this kid's having too much fun running around. Like I need them to calm down because I need to do X or Y or why won't this kid stop crying or they're angry, but they shouldn't be angry about this. So like, I, I think it does just kind of t- speak to a lot of what it felt like and can feel like to be a kid that your emotions are not valid. You're, emotions are not worthwhile of uh expressing and that like uh how damaging it can be to uh, develop with keeping them inside or trying to let one emotion come for the other like that idea of letting you know in this case disgust or anger try to be joy um like you want me to be happy i'm angry i'm not allowed to be angry because we're having a family dinner so i'm going to try to pretend and how disconnected that can make you from how you're supposed to feel. And I think that this movie does a fantastic job with, with that aspect as well. And I, I, from that perspective, I'm not surprised that my kids get a lot from it because they're seeing, especially by the end of it, you know, the fact that feelings are feelings that can be expressed, that anger, you express it this way. And that ultimately those feelings are, are, are valid, are a valid part of who you are. And I, I agree with that 100%. You know, I think the way that the, the world that the film creates reflects those feelings is so clever and how it represents the impact and, and frankly, the feedback loop between what is going on in the internal world of Riley and what is going on with her external actions and, and what that says to to kids who are going to watch Inside Out and hopefully appreciate it for years to come. And I will say, you know, I, I don't know if I would want to live inside <laughs> Riley's mind, but I would definitely want to go to a theme park like that yeah. for a, a, an afternoon or an evening. Uh, and I think that that maybe is another lens through which to appreciate it. Um, but, but you know, one of the things that really stands out to me and, and that I think connects uh, the movie to, to my appreciation is that there's such a synergy between the internal and the external worlds like that. Yeah. That at the same time, 
you have joy and sadness going through all of these struggles and having them represented in larger than life terms, you also have Riley going through these struggles in the real world. And the way that the one affects the other, the way an experience with Riley will create a crumbling island in her internal world that makes it harder for joy and sadness to get where they're going, that makes it harder for Riley to react the way that she wants to in a situation and so forth and so on. Just like the way everything builds on itself in the movie is incredible as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I think it, it lends itself, it dovetails so nicely with the overall moral of the movie, which is in the same way that Riley's story and Joy and Sadness's story work together. Uh, you have Joy and Sadness, both as characters, but also as concepts working together. And the idea that the two can combine is not an oxymoron, and it doesn't just produce bittersweetness, it produces catharsis, that there's a parallel between those two uh, when they are brought into the same mixture, when they are used as part of the same memory, as part of the same moment, as part of the same kinds of solace uh, that, that helps push yourself through some of those tougher moments. And I think the, the reason at the end of the day that I do think this is not just a kid's movie, an appropriate kid's movie, not just a good kid's movie, but an important kid's movie is at the end of the day, its message is that it's okay to feel negative emotions. It's not the kind of thing that you have to compartmentalize. It's not the kind of thing that you have to suppress. You know, we're, we're obviously living in somewhat tough times right now for a lot of people, uh, for very tough times for a, a wide uh, swath of our society. And I think putting on a, a film like Inside Out that says, Sometimes you're going to go through difficult times and you're going to feel in ways other than happy and that's okay is a, a message that so many kids need to hear, especially right now. And I think one of the sharp moves that the movie makes is to say that the the enemy of joy is not sadness, it's numbness. Yeah. That when we see joy and sadness taken away, we see that console turn gray we see it not able to be used we see people making decisions that are are desperate and and unlikely to get them where they actually need to go and, and i i think that's such a profound and almost quietly revolutionary idea that you can be feeling bad but that can be a good thing because it gets you to a better place whereas trying to ignore that is just going to leave you in some ways, feeling less. It is going to leave you feeling empty and, and gray in that same way. It literally drains all the color from this colorful world. And, and so the very notion of building a children's movie around the idea that it's okay to feel bad, and then in fact, feeling bad can help you get to feeling good, is such a vital thing that, that makes Inside Out not just, I think, a creative movie, not just a funny movie, not just a clever movie, but a, a profound and important one from where I sit. Yeah, and I uh, just that's perfectly stated. And just really quick as an addendum to that, I would just say that it's also the only movie I can think of for kids where, um, for the most part, movies end and kids are happy because they ultimately get either what they want or maybe not exactly what they want, but something that they ultimately are satisfied with. And while this shows a nice coda of her uh, assimilating to her environment, like she, the, the, the part of this moment is just that she got to express herself to her parents. You know, she's still in San Francisco. She doesn't get to go back to see her friends. She doesn't get to go back to the hockey team that she knew. 
Like it's not a kids movie where the where the our hero kid or whatever you want to call it like you know gets either some lesson that they accept or the thing that they wanted and you know I I have trouble thinking of of a kids movie that's basically about not getting anything that ultimately the kid wanted and just how you learn to accept that and deal with the emotions surrounding it. Absolutely. Uh, Andrew, <laughs> it was so great having you on again. Let's not make it two years until you join us <laughs> again. Uh, what do you have to plug? Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I, I hope that I didn't trigger too much of your disgust or anger or fear in my appearance. All joy, here. baby. <laughs> All, All joy. joy. All right, let's get some yellow marbles rolling here. <laughs> um but yeah, thank, thank you guys so much for having me and, and thank you to everybody for listening. Um, if you want to find more of my writing uh, about television and film and everything under the sun, uh, you can find links to all of my writing from all across the web at my website, which is theandrewblog.net. Uh, and you can also find me as part of Consequence of Sound's film and TV section and as part of the spool.net uh, covering shows like Star Trek, which I know obviously your, your listeners are very invested in. Uh, and you can also find me on Twitter at the Andrew blog. So again, thank you guys so much for for welcoming me into your little internal world. <laughs> yeah, you're always welcome back, Andrew. Yeah. I'm very slow at Star Trek Discovery, but anytime I uh, get through an episode, the first thing I go to are your reviews of them. Uh, so would highly <laughs> recommend uh, all of that stuff. Fantastic. And you're going to have to come on Star Trek when we uh, get uh, through the, 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 the new slog of movies we're about to go through um, and then get to our fun post Abrams movies uh, segment where we just do whatever the fuck we want for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that will be well there's only 729 episodes or something like that so you guys should finish it in no time <laughs> yeah so uh speaking of we talked about this being an animated movie peter that we don't uh that we haven't done that much of let's talk about another genre that uh is almost like i mean animated movies not really a genre i hate thinking about it that way but uh but this next one definitely is a genre and not only is it a genre peter all movies are basically this genre, as I understand it. It's, it's westerns. If you... you know, if you think about it, we've always done westerns, but this yeah. time we're going to do more westerns. One, one specific person's uh, western, and we're doing Once Upon a Time We Love to Watch, which is the uh, Sergio Leone's Dollar Trilogy, Fistful of Dollars, for a few dollars more. The good, the bad, the ugly, and then we're going to cap it with uh, uh, "Once Upon a Time in the West," uh, and then we've done, uh, I think, all but three of his movies. <laughs> right? The only other ones are "Colossal of Rhodes," uh, "Fistful of Dynamite," slash "Once Upon a Time in the Revolution," slash "Duck You Sucker," and uh, "Once Upon a Time in America." So uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do. What's what's four sevenths? Quick, someone who knows math. <laughs> uh, it'll be like around sixty percent, give or We're take. We're going to do about sixty percent, give or take, of all of Sergio Leone's filmography. But I'm really excited. These are um, uh, the good. I think watching Good, the Bad, and the Ugly in high school was, and I may have mentioned this on the show before, was the movie that I'm like, wait, are westerns good? Uh, and then, you know, <laughs> kind of became a fan from there of seeking out the right Westerns. I think Westerns uh, are a really good example 
of uh, a genre that if you get the wrong ones because your dad's watching them on a Sunday morning on some random channel, you can go like, this is stodgy and boring, um, and get the wrong impression of it. And uh, so, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about these movies. Peter, do you, I don't know if we confirmed, do you like these movies? Do you not like these movies? Oh, I'm of the opinion that they're all four of them are masterpieces, which is uh, it's a nigh perfect run. It's the sort of run that like I I don't think um, I don't think uh, George Miller pulled off with the Mad Max movies. I don't think those are four masterpieces, though they're all great. Um, let's see. Um, I don't think what what's comparable. There's just... I don't know. It is tough too, and I I didn't realize these were four in the row in a row. For some reason, um, I actually thought uh, Fistful of Dynamite was like in between Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, and that is not accurate. And I know that because I recognize that uh, these are some some pretty important movies, and I've bought and bought. <laughs> this shows my is I, bu- I I I purchased two books on Sergio uh, Leone, and I am reading them right now in preparation, so that uh, probably not I probably won't change anything I would say, but I would know say when movies came out that he directed better than normal. <laughs> uh, so so yeah, uh, I'm really excited. Uh, so our um, our guest list for that is we have Anthony Pizzo. Uh, dressed appropriately joining us for uh the first you put a little Western. bit too much oregano on oh, that. Please. <laughs> um uh that's how he described it for us to say so i feel okay with that uh doing a fistful of dollars and then um i think just zach zach groton's joining us for uh good the bad and the ugly uh which is probably good because these are long movies anyway so um uh, we will have a lot to talk about. Yeah, we don't need uh, an eight-hour episode on Once Upon a Time in the West. No, we like to save those for for really uh, for really important movies like The Color Out of Space. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Andrew, thank you so much for joining uh, us tonight. This was a blast, and uh, yeah, I uh, hope you are joyful. You know, I started this movie feeling <laughs> anger. <laughs> disgust a little bit fearful of what peter was gonna say and i'm leaving feeling not feeling sadness mm-hmm. which is a negative emotion because mm-hmm. uh, i've learned nothing <laughs> uh, uh but feeling general joy that uh that andrew's uh, uh was on my side <laughs> well I'll, I'll just close <laughs> i'll just close with this and say uh take your listeners to the moon for me <laughs> perfect good night to watch. 
you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on itunes i know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help and so every podcast wants that help so please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically they hopefully want to tune in and listen and thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years uh we really do appreciate you uh with kisses and smooches peter and aaron (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>